Chapter 98 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 98 The Bell and Bottle Tavern. And now, let us leave Mademoiselle Danglars and her friend pursuing their way to Brussels, and return to poor Andrea Cavalcanti, so inopportunely interrupted in his rise to fortune. Notwithstanding his youth, Master Andrea was a very skilful and intelligent boy. We have seen that on the first rumour which reached the salon, he had gradually approached the door, and, crossing two or three rooms, at last disappeared. But we have forgotten to mention one circumstance, which nevertheless ought not to be omitted. In one of the rooms he crossed, the trousseau of the bride-elect was on exhibition. There were caskets of diamonds, cashmere shawls, Valenciennes lace, English veilings, and, in fact, all the tempting things, the bare mention of which makes the hearts of young girls bound with joy, and which is called the corbeille. Now, in passing through this room, Andrea proved himself not only to be clever and intelligent, but also provident, for he helped himself to the most valuable of the ornaments before him. Furnished with this plunder, Andrea leapt with a lighter heart from the window, intending to slip through the hands of the gendarme, Tall and well-proportioned as an ancient gladiator, and muscular as a Spartan, he walked for a quarter of an hour without knowing where to direct his steps, actuated by the sole idea of getting away from the spot where, if he lingered, he knew that he would surely be taken. Having passed through the Rue Mont Blanc, guided by the instinct which leads thieves always to take the safest path, he found himself at the end of the Rue Lafayette. There he stopped, breathless and panting. He was quite alone. On one side was the vast wilderness of the Saint-Lazare, on the other Paris enshrouded in darkness. "'Am I to be captured?' he cried. "'No, not if I can use more activity than my enemies. My safety is now a mere question of speed.' At this moment he saw a cab at the top of the Faubourg Questionnaire. The dull driver, smoking his pipe, was plodding along towards the limits of the Faubourg Saint-Denis, where no doubt he ordinarily had his station. "'Ho, oh, friend!' said Benedetto. "'What do you want, sir?' asked the driver. "'Is your horse tired?' "'Tired? Oh, yes, tired enough. He has done nothing the whole of his blessed day. Four wretched fares and twenty sous over, making in all seven francs are all that I have earned, and I ought to take ten to the owner. Will you add these twenty francs to the seven you have? With pleasure, sir. Twenty francs are not to be despised. Tell me what I am to do for this. A very easy thing, if your horse isn't tired. I tell you, he'll go like the wind. Only tell me which way to drive. Towards the Louvre. I know the way. You get good sweetened rum over there. Exactly so. I merely wish to overtake one of my friends with whom I am going to hunt tomorrow at chapelle en -Saval. He should have waited for me here with a cabriolet till half-past eleven. It is twelve, and tired of waiting, he must have gone on. It is likely. Well, will you try and overtake him? Nothing I should like better. If you do not overtake him before we reach Bourget, you shall have twenty francs. 
if not before Louvre, thirty. And if we do overtake him? Forty, said Andrea after a moment's hesitation, at the end of which he remembered that he might safely promise. That's all right, said the man. Up in and we're off. Hoopla! Andrea got into the cab, which passed rapidly through the Faubourg Saint-Denis, along the Faubourg Saint-Martin, crossed the barrier, and threaded its way through the interminable Viette. They never overtook the chimerical friend, yet Andrea frequently inquired of people on foot whom he passed, and at the inns which were not yet closed, for a green cabriolet and bay horse, and as there are a great many cabriolets to be seen on the road to the low countries, and as nine-tenths of them are green, the inquiries increased at every step. Every one had just seen it pass. It was only five hundred, two hundred, one hundred steps in advance. At length they reached it, but it was not the friend. Once the cab was also passed by a calash, rapidly whirled along by two post-horses. Ah, said Cavalcanti to himself, if I only had that britzka, those two good post-horses, and above all the passport that carries them on. And he sighed deeply. The calash contained Mademoiselle Danglars and Mademoiselle d'Armilly. Hurry, hurry, said Andrea, we must overtake him soon. And the poor horse resumed the desperate gallop it had kept up since leaving the barrier, and arrived steaming at Louvre. Certainly, said Andrea. I shall not overtake my friend, but I shall kill your horse. Therefore I had better stop. Here are thirty francs. I will sleep at the red horse, and will secure a place in the first coach. Good night, friend. And Andrea, after placing six pieces of five francs, each in the man's hand, leapt lightly onto the pathway. The cabman joyfully pocketed the sum, and turned back on his road to Paris. Andrea pretended to go towards the Red Horse Inn, but after leaning an instant against the door, and hearing the last sound of the cab which was disappearing from view, he went on his road, and with a lusty stride soon traversed the space of two leagues. Then he rested. He must be near Chapelle-en-Serval, where he pretended to be going. It was not fatigue that stayed Andrea there, it was that he might form some resolution adopt some plan. It would be impossible to make use of a diligence, equally so to engage post-horses, to travel either way a passport was necessary. It was still more impossible to remain in the department of the Oise, one of the most open and strictly guarded in France. This was quite out of the question, especially to a man like Andrea, perfectly conversant with criminal matters. He sat down by the side of the moat, buried his face in his hands and reflected. Ten minutes after he raised his head, his resolution was made. He threw some dust over the topcoat, which he had found time to unhook from the antechamber, and button over his ball costume, and going to Chapelle-en-Saval, he knocked loudly at the door of the only inn in the place. The host opened. "'My friend,' said Andrea, I was coming from Montefontaine to Saint-Lys, when my horse, which is a troublesome creature, stumbled and threw me. I must reach Compiègne to-night, or I shall cause deep anxiety to my family. Could you let me hire a horse of you? An innkeeper has always a horse to let, whether it be good or bad. The host called the stable-boy and ordered him to saddle Whitey. 
then he awoke his son a child of seven years whom he ordered to ride before the gentleman and bring back the horse andrea gave the innkeeper twenty francs and in taking them from his pocket dropped a visiting card this belonged to one of his friends at the cafe de paris so that the innkeeper picking it up after andrea had left was convinced that he had let his horse to the count of morlion twenty-five rue saint dominique that being the name and address on the card whitey was not a fast animal but he kept up an easy steady pace in three hours and a half andrea had traversed the nine leagues which separated him from compiegne and four o'clock struck as he reached the place where the coaches stop there's an excellent tavern at compiegne well remembered by those who have ever been there andrea who had often stayed there in his rides about paris recollected the bell and bottle inn he turned around saw the sign by the light of a reflected lamp and having dismissed the child giving him all the small coin he had about him he began knocking at the door very reasonably concluding that having now three or four hours before him he had best fortify himself against the fatigues of the morrow by a sound sleep and a good supper a waiter opened the door my friend said andrea i have been dining at st jean au bois and expected to catch the coach which passes by at midnight but like a fool i have lost my way and have been walking for the last four hours in the forest show me into one of those pretty little rooms which overlook the court and bring me a cold fowl and a bottle of bordeaux the waiter had no suspicions andrea spoke with perfect composure he had a cigar in his mouth and his hands in the pocket of his topcoat his clothes were fashionably made his chin smooth his boots irreproachable he looked merely as if he had stayed out very late that was all while the waiter was preparing his room the hostess arose andrea assumed his most charming smile and asked if he could have number three which he had occupied on his last stay at compiegne unfortunately number three was engaged by a young man who was traveling with his sister andrea appeared in despair but consoled himself when the hostess assured him that number seven prepared for him was situated precisely the same as number three and while warming his feet and chatting about the last races at chantilly he waited until they announced his room to be ready andrea had not spoken without cause of the pretty rooms looking out upon the court of the bell tavern which with its triple galleries like those of a theatre with the jessamine and clematis twining round the light columns forms one of the prettiest entrances to an inn that you can imagine the fowl was tender the wine old the fire clear and sparkling and andrea was surprised to find himself eating with as good an appetite as though nothing had happened then he went to bed and almost immediately fell into that deep sleep which is sure to visit men of twenty years of age even when they are torn with remorse now here we are obliged to own that andrea ought to have felt remorse but that he did not this was the plan which had appealed to him to afford the best chance of his security before daybreak he would awake leave the inn after rigorously paying his bill and reaching the forest he would under pretense of making studies in painting test the hospitality of some peasants procure himself the dress of a woodcutter and a hatchet casting off the lion skin to assume that of the woodman then with his hands covered with dirt his hair darkened by means of a leaden comb 
his complexion embrowned with a preparation for which one of his old comrades had given him the recipe he intended by following the wooded districts to reach the nearest frontier walking by night and sleeping in the day in the forests and quarries and only entering inhabited regions to buy a loaf from time to time once past the frontier andrea proposed making money of his diamonds and by uniting the proceeds to ten banknotes he always carried about with him in case of accident he would then find himself possessor of about fifty thousand livres which he philosophically considered as no very deplorable condition after all moreover he reckoned much on the interest of the donglars to hush up the rumour of their own misadventures these were the reasons which added to the fatigue caused andrea to sleep so soundly in order that he might awaken early he did not close the shutters but contented himself with bolting the door and placing on the table an unclasped and long pointed knife whose temper he well knew and which was never absent from him about seven in the morning andrea was awakened by a ray of sunlight which played warm and brilliant upon his face in all well-organized brains the predominating idea and there always is one is sure to be the last thought before sleeping and the first upon waking in the morning andrea had scarcely opened his eyes when his predominating idea presented itself and whispered in his ear that he had slept too long he jumped out of bed and ran to the window a gendarme was crossing the court a gendarme is one of the most striking objects in the world even to a man void of uneasiness but for one who has a timid conscience and with good cause too the yellow blue and white uniform is really very alarming why is that gendarme here asked andrea of himself then all at once he replied with that logic which the reader has doubtless remarked in him there is nothing astonishing in seeing a gendarme at an inn instead of being astonished let me dress myself and the youth dressed himself with a facility his valet de chambre had failed to rob him of during the two months of fashionable life he had led in paris now then said andrea while dressing himself i'll wait till he leaves and then i'll slip away and saying this andrea who had now put on his boots and cravat stole gently to the window and a second time lifted up the muslin curtain not only was the first gendarme still there but the young man now perceived a second yellow blue and white uniform at the foot of the staircase the only one by which he could descend while a third on horseback holding a musket in his fist was posted as a sentinel at the great street door which alone afforded the means of egress the appearance of the third gendarme settled the matter for a crowd of curious loungers was extended before him effectually blocking the entrance to the hotel they're after me was andrea's first thought the devil a pallor overspread the young man's forehead and he looked around him with anxiety his room like all those on the same floor had but one outlet to the gallery in the sight of everybody i am lost was his second thought and indeed for a man in andrea's situation an arrest meant the assizes trial and death death without mercy or delay for a moment he convulsively pressed his head within his hands and during that brief period he became nearly mad with terror but soon 
a ray of hope glimmered in the multitude of thoughts which bewildered his mind and a faint smile played upon his white lips and pallid cheeks he looked around and saw the objects of his search upon the chimney-piece they were a pen ink and paper with forced composure he dipped the pen in the ink and wrote the following lines upon a sheet of paper i have no money to pay my bill but i am not a dishonest man i leave behind me as a pledge this pin worth ten times the amount i should be excused for leaving at daybreak for i was ashamed he then drew the pin from his cravat and placed it on the paper this done instead of leaving the door fastened he drew back the bolts and even placed the door ajar as though he had left the room forgetting to close it and slipping into the chimney like a man accustomed to that kind of gymnastic exercise having effaced the marks of his feet upon the floor he commenced climbing the only opening which afforded him the means of escape at this precise time the first gendarme andrea had noticed walked upstairs preceded by the commissary of police and supported by the second gendarme who guarded the staircase and was himself reinforced by the one stationed at the door andrea was indebted for this visit to the following circumstances at daybreak the telegraphs were set at work in all directions and almost immediately the authorities in every district had exerted their utmost endeavors to arrest the murderer of cadarus compiegne that royal residence and fortified town is well furnished with authorities gendarmes and commissaries of police they therefore began operations as soon as the telegraphic dispatch arrived and the bell and bottle being the best known hotel in the town they had naturally directed their first inquiries there now besides the reports of the sentinels guarding the hotel de ville which is next door to the bell and bottle it had been stated by others that a number of travellers had arrived during the night the sentinel who was relieved at six o'clock in the morning remembered perfectly that just as he was taking his post a few minutes past four a young man arrived on horseback with a little boy before him the young man having dismissed the boy and horse knocked at the door of the hotel which was opened and again closed after his entrance this late arrival had attracted much suspicion and the young man being no other than andrea the commissary and gendarme who was a brigadier directed their steps towards his room they found the door ajar oh no said the brigadier who thoroughly understood the trick a bad sign to find the door open i would rather find it triply bolted and indeed the little note and pin upon the table confirmed or rather corroborated the sad truth andrea had fled we say corroborated because the brigadier was too experienced to be convinced by a single proof he glanced around looked in the bed shook the curtains opened the closets and finally stopped at the chimney andrea had taken the precaution to leave no traces of his feet in the ashes but it still was an outlet and in this light was not to be passed over without serious investigation the brigadier sent for some sticks and straw and having filled the chimney with them set a light to it the fire crackled and the smoke ascended like the dull vapor from a volcano but still no prisoner fell down as they expected the fact was that andrea had war with society ever since his youth was quite as deep as a gendarme even though we were advanced to the rank of brigadier 
and quite prepared for the fire. He'd climbed out on the roof and was crouching down against the chimney-pots. At one time he thought he was saved, for he heard the brigadier exclaim in a loud voice to the two gendarmes, "'He is not here!' But venturing to peep, he perceived that the latter, instead of retiring as might have been reasonably expected upon this announcement, were watching with increased attention. It was now his turn to look about him. The Hôtel de Ville, a massive sixteenth-century building, was on his right. Anyone could descend from the openings in the tower and examine every corner of the roof below, and Andrea expected momentarily to see the head of a gendarme appear at one of these openings. If once discovered, he knew he would be lost, for the roof afforded no chance of escape. He therefore resolved to descend, not through the same chimney by which he had come up, but by a similar one conducting to another room. He looked around for a chimney from which no smoke issued, and having reached it, he disappeared through the orifice without being seen by anyone. At the same minute, one of the little windows of the Hôtel de Ville was thrown open, and the head of a gendarme appeared. For an instant it remained motionless as one of the stone decorations of the building. Then, after a long sigh of disappointment, the head disappeared. The brigadier, calm and dignified as the law he represented, passed through the crowd, without answering the thousand questions addressed to him, and re-entered the hotel. "'Well?' asked the two gendarmes. "'Well, my boys,' said the brigadier, "'the brigand must really have escaped early this morning. But we will send to the Vieux Cotteret and Noyon Roads, and search the forest, when we shall catch him, no doubt.' The honourable functionary had scarcely expressed himself thus, in that intonation which is peculiar to brigadiers of the gendarmerie, when a loud scream, accompanied by the violent ringing of a bell, resounded through the court of the hotel. "'Ah, what is that?' cried the brigadier. "'Some traveller seems impatient,' said the host. "'What number was it that rang?' "'Number three. "'Run, waiter.' At this moment the screams and ringing were redoubled. "'Ah,' said the brigadier, stopping the servant, "'the person who is ringing appears to want something more than a waiter. "'We will attend upon him with a gendarme. "'Who occupies numéro trois?' "'The little fellow who arrived last night in a post-chaise with his sister, "'and who asked for an apartment with two beds.' "'The bell here rang for the third time with another shriek of anguish. "'Follow me, Monsieur Commissary,' said the brigadier. "'Tread in my steps.' "'Wait an instant,' said the host. "'Numero trois has two staircases, inside and outside.' "'Good,' said the brigadier. "'I will take charge of the inside one.' "'Are the carbines loaded?' "'Yes, Brigadier.' "'Well, you guard the exterior, and if he attempts to fly, fire upon him. "'He must be a great criminal from what the telegraph says.' The brigadier, followed by the commissary, disappeared by the inside staircase, accompanied by the noise which his assertions respecting Andrea had excited in the crowd. This is what had happened. Andrea had very cleverly managed to descend two-thirds of the chimney. But then his foot slipped, and notwithstanding his endeavours, he came into the room with more speed and noise than he intended. It would have signified little had the room been empty, but unfortunately it was occupied. 
two ladies, sleeping in one bed, were awakened by the noise, and fixing their eyes upon the spot whence the sound proceeded, they saw a man. One of these ladies, the fair one, uttered those terrible shrieks which resounded through the house, while the other, rushing to the bell-rope, rang with all her strength. Andrea, as we can see, was surrounded by misfortune. "'For pity's sake!' he cried, pale and bewildered, without seeing whom he was addressing. "'For pity's sake, do not call assistance. Save me! I will not harm you!' "'Andrea, the murderer!' cried one of the ladies. "'Eugenie! Mademoiselle Donglars!' exclaimed Andrea, stupefied. "'Help! Help!' cried Mademoiselle d'Armilly, taking the bell from her companion's hand and ringing it yet more violently. "'Save me! I am pursued!' said Andrea, clasping his hands. "'For pity! For mercy's sake! Do not deliver me up!' "'It is too late. They are coming,' said Eugenie. "'Well, conceal me somewhere. You can say you were needlessly alarmed. You can turn their suspicions and save my life.' The two ladies, pressing closely to one another, and drawing the bedclothes tightly around them, remained silent to this supplicating voice, repugnance and fear taking possession of their minds. "'Well, be it so,' at length said Eugenie. "'Return by the same road you came, and we will say nothing about you, unhappy wretch.' "'Here, here he is,' cried a voice from the landing. "'Here he is, I see him.' The brigadier had put his eye to the keyhole and had discovered Andrea in a posture of entreaty. A violent blow from the butt-end of the musket burst open the lock. Two more forced out the bolts, and the broken door fell in. Andrea ran to the other door, leading to the gallery, ready to rush out. But he was stopped short, and he stood with his body a little thrown back, pale and with the useless knife in his clinched hand. "'Fly, then!' cried Mademoiselle d'Armilly, whose pity returned as her fears diminished. "'Fly!' "'Or kill yourself,' said Eugenie, in a tone which a vestal in the amphitheatre would have used when urging the victorious gladiator to finish his vanquished adversary." Andrea shuddered, and looked on the young girl with an expression which proved how little he understood such ferocious honour. "'Kill myself?' he cried, throwing down his knife. "'Why should I do so?' "'Why,' you said,' answered Mademoiselle Donglars, "'that you would be condemned to die like the worst criminals.' "'Bah!' said Cavalcanti, crossing his arms. "'One has friends.' The brigadier advanced to him, sword in hand. "'Come, come,' said Andrea. "'Sheath your sword, my fine fellow. "'There is no occasion to make such a fuss, since I give myself up.' And he held out his hands to be manacled. The girls looked with horror upon this shameful metamorphosis, the man of the world shaking off his covering and appearing as a galley-slave. Andrea turned towards them, and with an impertinent smile asked, "'Have you any message for your father, Mademoiselle Donglars? "'For in all probability I shall return to Paris.' "'Eugenie covered her face with her hands. "'Oh, oh!' said Andrea. "'You need not be ashamed, even though you did post after me. "'Was I not nearly your husband?' "'And with this raillery Andrea went out, "'leaving the two girls a prey to their own feelings of shame "'and to the comments of the crowd.' An hour after, they stepped into their calash, both dressed in feminine attire. 
The gate of the hotel had been closed to screen them from sight, but they were forced, when the door was open, to pass through a throng of curious glances and whispering voices. Eugenie closed her eyes, but though she could not see, she could hear, and the sneers of the crowd reached her in the carriage. "'Oh, why is not the world a wilderness?' she exclaimed, throwing herself into the arms of Mademoiselle d'Armilly, her eyes sparkling with the same kind of rage which made Nero wish that the Roman world had but one neck, that he might sever it at a single blow. The next day they stopped at the Hôtel de Flandre at Brussels. The same evening Andrea was incarcerated in the conciergerie. End of chapter 98「Chapter 99 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 99 The Law We have seen how quietly Mademoiselle Donglars and Mademoiselle d'Army accomplished their transformation and flight. The fact being that everyone was too much occupied in his or her own affairs to think of theirs. We will leave the banker contemplating the enormous magnitude of his debt before the phantom of bankruptcy, and follow the baroness, who, after being momentarily crushed under the weight of the blow which had struck her, had gone to seek her usual adviser, Lucien de Bray. The baroness had looked forward to this marriage as a means of ridding her of a guardianship which, over a girl of Eugenie's character, could not fail to be rather a troublesome undertaking for in the tacit relations which maintained the bond of family union, the mother, to maintain her ascendancy over her daughter, must never fail to be a model of wisdom and a type of perfection. Now, Madame Danglars feared Eugenie's sagacity and the influence of Mademoiselle d'Armilly. She had frequently observed the contemptuous expression with which her daughter looked upon de Bray, an expression which seemed to imply that she understood all her mother's amorous and pecuniary relationships with the intimate secretary. Moreover, she saw that Eugenie detested de Bray, not only because he was a source of dissension and scandal under the paternal roof, but because she had once classed him in that catalogue of bipeds whom Plato endeavours to withdraw from the appellation of men, and whom Diogenes designated as animals upon two legs without feathers. Unfortunately, in this world of ours, each person views things through a certain medium, and so is prevented from seeing in the same light as others, and Madame Danglars, therefore, very much regretted that the marriage of Eugenie had not taken place, not only because the match was good and likely to ensure the happiness of her child, but because it would also set her at liberty. She ran, therefore, to Dubray, who, after having, like the rest of Paris, witnessed the contract scene and the scandal attending it, had retired in haste to his club, where he was chatting with some friends upon the events which served as a subject of conversation for three-fourths of that city known as the capital of the world. At the precise time when Madame Danglars, dressed in black and concealed in a long veil, was ascending the stairs leading to Debray's apartments, notwithstanding the assurances of the concierge that the young man was not at home, de Bray was occupied in repelling the insinuations of a friend, who tried to persuade him that after the terrible scene which had just taken place, 
he ought as a friend of the family to marry mademoiselle d'anglars and her two millions debray did not defend himself very warmly for the idea had sometimes crossed his mind still when he recollected the independent proud spirit of eugenie he positively rejected it as utterly impossible though the same thought again continually recurred and found a resting place in his heart tea play and the conversation which had become interesting during the discussion of such serious affairs lasted till one o'clock in the morning meanwhile madame d'anglars veiled and uneasy awaited the return of debray in the little green room seated between two baskets of flowers which she had that morning sent and which it must be confessed debray had himself arranged and watered with so much care that his absence was half excused in the eyes of the poor woman at twenty minutes of twelve madame d'anglars tired of waiting returned home women of a certain grade are like prosperous grisette in one respect they seldom return home after twelve o'clock the baroness returned to the hotel with as much caution as eugenie used in leaving it she ran lightly upstairs and with an aching heart entered her apartment contiguous as we know to that of eugenie she was fearful of exciting any remark and believed firmly in her daughter's innocence and fidelity to the paternal roof she listened at eugenie's door and hearing no sound tried to enter but the bolts were in place madame d'anglars then concluded that the young girl had been overcome with the terrible excitement of the evening and had gone to bed and to sleep she called the maid and questioned her mademoiselle eugenie said the maid retired to her apartment with mademoiselle d'armilly they then took tea together after which they desired me to leave saying that they needed me no longer since then the maid had been below and like everyone else she thought the young ladies were in their own room madame d'anglars therefore went to bed without a shadow of suspicion and began to muse over the recent events in proportion as her memory became clearer the occurrences of the evening were revealed in their true light what she had taken for confusion was a tumult what she had regarded as something distressing was in reality a disgrace and then the baroness remembered that she had felt no pity for poor mercedes who had been afflicted with as severe a blow through her husband and son eugenie she said to herself is lost and so are we the affair as it will be reported will cover us with shame for in a society such as ours satire inflicts a painful and incurable wound how unfortunate that eugenie is possessed of that strange character which so often made me tremble and her glance was turned towards heaven where a mysterious providence disposes all things and out of a fault nay even a vice sometimes produces a blessing and then her thoughts cleaving through space like a bird in the air rested on cavalcanti this andrea was a wretch a robber an assassin and yet his manners showed the effects of a sort of education if not a complete one he had been presented to the world with the appearance of an immense fortune supported by an honorable name how could she extricate herself from this labyrinth to whom would she apply to help her out of this painful situation debray to whom she had run with the first instinct of a woman 
towards the man she loves, and who yet betrays her. Debray could but give her advice. She must apply to someone more powerful than he. The Baroness then thought of Monsieur de Villefort. It was Monsieur de Villefort who had remorselessly brought misfortune into her family, as though they had been strangers. But no, on reflection, the procureur was not a merciless man, and it was not the magistrate slave to his duties, but the friend, the loyal friend, who roughly but firmly cut into the very core of the corruption. It was not the executioner, but the surgeon who wished to withdraw the honour of Danglars from ignominious association with the disgraced young man they had presented to the world as their son-in-law. And since Villefort, the friend of Danglars, had acted in this way, no one could suppose that he had been previously acquainted with or had lent himself to any of Andrea's intrigues. Villefort's conduct, therefore, upon reflection, appeared to the baroness as if shaped for their mutual advantage. But the inflexibility of the procureur should stop there. She would see him the next day, and if she could not make him fail in his duties as a magistrate, she would at least obtain all the indulgence he could allow. She would invoke the past, recall old recollections, she would supplicate him by the remembrance of guilty yet happy days. Monsieur de Villefort would stifle the affair. He had only to turn his eyes on one side and allow Andrea to fly, and follow up the crime under that shadow of guilt called contempt of court, and after this reasoning she slept easily. At nine o'clock next morning she arose, and without ringing for her maid or giving the least sign of her activity, she dressed herself in the same simple style as on the previous night. Then running downstairs she left the hotel, walked to the Rue de Provence, called a cab, and drove to Monsieur de Villefort's house. For the last month this wretched house had presented the gloomy appearance of a lazaretto infected with the plague. Some of the apartments were closed within and without. The shutters were only opened to admit a minute's air, showing the scared face of a footman, and immediately afterwards the window would be closed, like a grey stone falling on a sepulchre, and the neighbours would say to each other in a low voice, "'Will there be another funeral today at the procureur's house?' Madame Danglars involuntarily shuddered at the desolate aspect of the mansion. Descending from the cab, she approached the door with trembling knees and rang the bell. Three times did the bell ring with a dull, heavy sound seeming to participate in the general sadness, before the concierge appeared and peeped through the door, which he opened just wide enough to allow his words to be heard. He saw a lady, a fashionable, elegantly dressed lady, and yet the door remained almost closed. "'Do you intend opening the door?' said the baroness. First, madame, who are you?' "'Who am I? You know me well enough.' "'We no longer know anyone, madame.' "'You must be mad, my friend,' said the baroness. "'Where do you come from?' "'Oh, this is too much.' "'Madame, these are my orders. Excuse me, your name.' "'The baroness Donglars. You have seen me twenty times.' "'Possibly, madame. And now, what do you want?' "'Oh, how extraordinary! 
I shall complain to Monsieur de Villefort of the impertinence of his servants. Madame, this is precaution, not impertinence. No one enters here without an order from Monsieur d'Avrigny, or without speaking to the procureur. Well, I have business with the procureur. Is it pressing business? You can imagine so, since I have not even brought my carriage out yet. But enough of this. Here is my card. Take it to your master. Madame will await my return? Yes, go. The concierge closed the door, leaving Madame Danglars in the street. She had not long to wait. Directly afterwards the door was opened wide enough to admit her, and when she had passed through it was again shut. Without losing sight of her for an instant, the concierge took a whistle from his pocket as soon as they entered the court, and blew it. The valet de chambre appeared on the doorsteps. "'You will excuse this poor fellow, madame,' he said as he preceded the baroness. "'But his orders are precise, and Monsieur de Villefort begged me to tell you that he could not act otherwise.' In the court, showing his merchandise, was a tradesman who had been admitted with the same precautions. The baroness ascended the steps. She felt herself strongly infected with the sadness which seemed to magnify her own, and still guided by the valet de chambre, who never lost sight of her for an instant, she was introduced to the magistrate's study. Preoccupied as Madame Donglars had been with the object of her visit, the treatment she had received from these underlings appeared to her so insulting that she began by complaining of it. But Villefort, raising his head, bowed down by grief, looked up at her with so sad a smile that her complaints died upon her lips. "'Forgive my servants,' he said. "'For a terror I cannot blame them for. From being suspected they had become suspicious.' Madame Danglars had often heard of the terror to which the magistrate alluded, but without the evidence of her own eyesight she could never have believed that the sentiment had been carried so far. "'You too, then, are unhappy,' she said. "'Yes, madame,' replied the magistrate. "'Then you pity me?' "'Sincerely, madame.' "'And you understand what brings me here?' "'You wish to speak to me about the circumstance which has just happened?' "'Yes, sir. A fearful misfortune.' "'You mean a mischance?' "'A mischance?' repeated the baroness. "'Alas, madame,' said the procureur, with his imperturbable calmness of manner, "'I consider those alone misfortunes which are irreparable.' "'And do you suppose this will be forgotten?' "'Everything will be forgotten, madame,' said Villefort. Your daughter will be married tomorrow, if not today. In a week, if not tomorrow, and I do not think you can regret the intended husband of your daughter. Madame Danglars gazed on Villefort, stupefied to find him so almost insultingly calm. Am I come to a friend? she asked in a tone full of mournful dignity. You know that you are, madame, said Villefort, whose pale cheeks became slightly flushed as he gave her the assurance and truly this assurance carried him back to different events from those now occupying the baroness and him. "'Well, then, be more affectionate, my dear Villefort,' said the baroness. "'Speak to me not as a magistrate, but as a friend, and when I am in bitter anguish of spirit, do not tell me that I ought to be gay.' Villefort bowed. 
"'When I hear misfortune named, madame,' he said, "'I have within the last few months contracted the bad habit of thinking of my own, "'and then I cannot help drawing up an egotistical parallel in my mind. "'That is the reason that by the side of my misfortunes "'yours appear to me mere mischances. "'That is why my dreadful position makes yours appear enviable. "'But this annoys you. Let us change the subject.' "'You were saying, madame.' "'I came to ask you, my friend,' said the baroness, "'what will be done with this impostor?' "'Impostor?' repeated Villefort. "'Certainly, madame. "'You appear to extenuate some cases and exaggerate others. "'Impostor, indeed. "'Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti, or rather Monsieur Benedetto, "'is nothing more nor less than an assassin.' "'Sir, I do not deny the justice of your correction, "'but the more severely you arm yourself against that unfortunate man, "'the more deeply will you strike our family. "'Come, forget him for a moment, "'and instead of pursuing him, let him go.' "'You are too late, madame. "'The orders are issued.' "'Well, should he be arrested, "'do they think they will arrest him?' "'I hope so.' "'If they should arrest him, I know that sometimes prisoners afford means of escape. Will you leave him in prison?' The procureur shook his head. "'At least keep him there till my daughter be married.' "'Impossible, madame. Justice has its formalities.' "'What, even for me?' said the baroness, half jesting, half in earnest. "'For all, even for myself among the rest.' "'replied Villefort. "'Ah!' exclaimed the baroness, "'without expressing the ideas "'which the exclamation betrayed. "'Villefort looked at her "'with that piercing glance "'which reads the secrets of the heart. "'Yes, I know what you mean,' he said. "'You refer to the terrible rumours "'spread abroad in the world "'that the deaths which have kept me in mourning "'for the last three months, "'and from which Valentine has only escaped "'by a miracle,' "'have not happened by natural means.' "'I was not thinking of that,' replied Madame Danglars quickly. "'Yes, you were thinking of that, and with justice. "'You could not help thinking of it, and saying to yourself, "'You who pursue crime so vindictively, "'answer now, why are there unpunished crimes in your dwelling?' "'The Baroness became pale. "'You were saying this, were you not?' "'Well, I own it. I will answer you.' Villefort drew his armchair nearer to Madame Danglars. Then, resting both hands upon his desk, he said, in a voice more hollow than usual, "'There are crimes which remain unpunished, because the criminals are unknown, and we might strike the innocent instead of the guilty. But when the culprits are discovered—' Villefort here extended his hand toward a large crucifix placed opposite to his desk. "'When they are discovered, I swear to you by all I hold most sacred, that whoever they may be, they shall die. Now, after the oath I have just taken, and which I will keep, madame, dare you ask for mercy for that wretch?' "'But, sir, are you sure he is guilty as they say?' "'Listen.' This is his description. Benedetto, condemned at the age of sixteen for five years to the galleys for forgery. 
He promised well, as you see. First a runaway, then an assassin. And who is this wretch? Who can tell? A vagabond, a Corsican. Has no one owned him? No one. His parents are unknown. But who was the man who brought him from Luca? Another rascal like himself. Perhaps his accomplice. The baroness clasped her hands. Villefort, she exclaimed in her softest and most captivating manner. For heaven's sake, madame, said Villefort, with a firmness of expression not altogether free from harshness. For heaven's sake, do not ask pardon for me for a guilty wretch. What am I? The law. Has the law any eyes to witness your grief? Has the law ears to be melted by your sweet voice? Has the law a memory for all those soft recollections you endeavour to recall? No, madame. The law has commanded, and when it commands, it strikes. You will tell me that I am a living being and not a code, a man and not a volume. Look at me. Madame, look around me. Have mankind treated me as a brother? Have they loved me? Have they spared me? Has anyone shown the mercy towards me that you now ask at my hands? No, madame, they struck me, always struck me. Woman, siren that you are, do you persist in fixing on me that fascinating eye which reminds me that I ought to blush? Well, be it so. Let me blush for the faults you know, and perhaps, perhaps for even more than those. But having sinned myself, it may be more deeply than others. I never rest till I have torn the disguises from my fellow creatures and found out their weaknesses. I have always found them. And more, I repeat it with joy, with triumph. I have always found some proof of human perversity or error. Every criminal I condemn seems to me living evidence that I am not a hideous exception to the rest. Alas, 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 all the world is wicked. Let us therefore strike at wickedness. Villefort pronounced these last words with a feverish rage which gave a ferocious eloquence to his words. But, said Madame Danglars, resolving to make a last effort, this young man, though a murderer, is an orphan, abandoned by everybody. So much the worse, or rather so much the better. It has been so ordained that he may have none to weep his fate. But this is trampling on the weak, sir. The weakness of a murderer. His dishonour reflects upon us. Is not death in my house? Oh, sir, exclaimed the baroness, you are without pity for others. Well, then, I tell you they will have no mercy on you. Be it so, said Villefort, raising his arms to heaven. At least delay the trial till the next assizes. We shall then have six months before us. No, madame, said Villefort. Instructions have been given. There are yet five days left. Five days are more than I require. Do you not think that I also long for forgetfulness? While working night and day, I sometimes lose all recollection of the past, and then I experience the same sort of happiness I can imagine the dead feel. Still, it is better than suffering. But, sir, he has fled. Let him escape. Inaction is a pardonable offence. I tell you it is too late. Early this morning the telegraph was employed, and at this very minute 
Sir, said the valet de chambre, entering the room, a dragoon has brought his dispatch from the minister of the interior. Villefort seized the letter and hastily broke the seal. Madame Danglars trembled with fear. Villefort started with joy. Arrested, he exclaimed. He was taken at Compiègne, and all is over. Madame Danglars rose from her seat, pale and cold. Adieu, sir, she said. Adieu, madame, replied the king's attorney, as in an almost joyful manner he conducted her to the door. Then, turning to his desk, he said, striking the letter with the back of his right hand, Come, I had a forgery, three robberies, and two cases of arson. I only wanted a murder, and here it is. It will be a splendid session. End of chapter 99Chapter 100 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 100 The Apparition. As the procureur had told Madame Danglars, Valentine was not yet recovered. Bowed down with fatigue, she was indeed confined to her bed, and it was in her own room and from the lips of Madame de Villefort that she heard all the strange events we have related. We mean the flight of Eugenie and the arrest of Andrea Cavalcanti, or rather Benedetto, together with the accusation of murder pronounced against him. But Valentine was so weak that this recital scarcely produced the same effect it would have done had she been in her usual state of health. Indeed, her brain was only the seat of vague ideas and confused forms, mingled with strange fancies, alone presented themselves before her eyes. During the daytime, Valentine's perceptions remained tolerably clear, owing to the constant presence of Monsieur Noirtier, who caused himself to be carried to his granddaughter's room, and watched her with his paternal tenderness. Villefort also, on his return from the law courts, frequently passed an hour or two with his father and child. At six o'clock, Villefort retired to his study. At eight, Monsieur d'Avrigny himself arrived bringing the night-draft prepared for the young girl, and then Monsieur Noirtier was carried away. A nurse of the doctor's choice succeeded them, and never left till about ten or eleven o'clock when Valentine was asleep. As she went downstairs, she gave the keys of Valentine's room to Monsieur de Villefort, so that no one could reach the sick-room excepting through that of Madame de Villefort and little Edward. Every morning Morel called on Noirtier to receive news of Valentine, and, extraordinary as it seemed, each day found him less uneasy. Certainly, though Valentine still laboured under dreadful nervous excitement, she was better, and, moreover, Monte Cristo had told him when, half distracted, he had rushed to the Count's house, that if she were not dead in two hours, she would be saved. Now four days had elapsed, and Valentine still lived. The nervous excitement of which we speak pursued Valentine even in her sleep, or rather in that state of somnolence which succeeded her waking hours. It was then, in the silence of night, in the dim light shed from the alabaster lamp on the chimney-piece, that she saw the shadows pass and repass which hover over the bed of sickness, and fan the fever with their trembling wings. First she fancied she saw her stepmother threatening her. Then Morel stretched his arms towards her, 
Sometimes mere strangers like the Count of Monte Cristo came to visit her. Even the very furniture, in these moments of delirium, seemed to move. And this state lasted till about three o'clock in the morning, when a deep, heavy slumber overcame the young girl, from which she did not awake till daylight. On the evening of the day on which Valentine had learned of the flight of Eugenie and the arrest of Benedetto, Villefort, having retired as well as Noirtier and Davrigny, her thoughts wandered in a confused maze, alternately reviewing her own situation and the events she had just heard. Eleven o'clock had struck. The nurse, having placed the beverage prepared by the doctor within reach of the patient, and locked the door, was listening with terror to the comments of the servants in the kitchen, and storing her memory with all the horrible stories which had for some months past amused the occupants of the antechambers in the house of the king's attorney. Meanwhile an unexpected scene was passing in the room which had been so carefully locked. Ten minutes had elapsed since the nurse had left. Valentine, who for the last hour had been suffering from the fever which returned nightly, incapable of controlling her ideas, was forced to yield to the excitement which exhausted itself in producing and reproducing a succession and recurrence of the same fancies and images. The night-lamp threw out countless rays, each resolving itself into some strange form to her disordered imagination, when suddenly by its flickering light Valentine thought she saw the door of her library, which was in the recess by the chimney-piece, open slowly, though she in vain listened for the sound of the hinges on which it turned. At any other time Valentine would have seized the silken bell-pull and summoned assistance but nothing astonished her in her present situation. Her reason told her that all the visions she beheld were but the children of her imagination, and the conviction was strengthened by the fact that in the morning no traces remained of the nocturnal phantoms who disappeared with the coming of daylight. From behind the door a human figure appeared, but the girl was too familiar with such apparitions to be alarmed, and therefore only stared, hoping to recognize Morel. The figure advanced toward the bed, and appeared to listen with profound attention. At this moment a ray of light glanced across the face of the midnight visitor. "'It is not he,' she murmured, and waited, in the assurance that this was but a dream, for the man to disappear or assume some other form. Still, she felt her pulse, and finding it throb violently, she remembered that the best method of dispelling such illusions was to drink for a draught of the beverage prepared by the doctor to allay her fever seemed to cause a reaction of the brain, and for a short time she suffered less. Valentine, therefore, reached her hand towards the glass, but as soon as her trembling arm left the bed, the apparition advanced more quickly towards her, and approached the young girl so closely that she fancied she heard his breath and felt the pressure of his hand. This time the illusion, or rather the reality surpassed anything Valentine had before experienced. She began to believe herself really alive and awake, and the belief that her reason was this time not deceived made her shudder. The pressure she felt was evidently intended to arrest her arm, and she slowly withdrew it. Then the figure, from whom she could not detach her eyes, and who appeared more protecting than menacing, took the glass and, walking towards the nightlight, held it up as if to test its transparency. 
this did not seem sufficient the man or rather the ghost for he trod so softly that no sound was heard then poured out about a spoonful into the glass and drank it valentine witnessed this scene with a sentiment of stupefaction every minute she had expected that it would vanish and give place to another vision but the man instead of dissolving like a shadow again approached her and said in an agitated voice now you may drink valentine shuddered it was the first time one of these visions had ever addressed her in a living voice and she was about to utter an exclamation the man placed his finger on her lips the count of monte cristo she murmured it was easy to see that no doubt now remained in the young girl's mind as to the reality of the scene her eyes started with terror her hands trembled and she rapidly drew the bedclothes closer to her still the presence of monte cristo at such an hour his mysterious fanciful and extraordinary entrance into her room through the wall might well seem impossibilities to her shattered reason do not call anyone do not be alarmed said the count do not let a shade of suspicion or uneasiness remain in your breast the man standing before you valentine for this time it is no ghost is nothing more than the tenderest father and the most respectful friend you could dream of valentine could not reply the voice which indicated the real presence of a being in the room alarmed her so much that she feared to utter a syllable still the expression of her eyes seemed to inquire if your intentions are pure why are you here the count's marvellous sagacity understood all that was passing in the young girl's mind listen to me he said or rather look upon me look at my face paler even than usual and my eyes red with weariness for four days i have not closed them for i have been constantly watching you to protect and preserve you for maximilian the blood mounted rapidly to the cheeks of valentine for the name just announced by the count dispelled all the fear with which his presence had inspired her maximilian she exclaimed and so sweet did the sound appear to her that she repeated it maximilian has he then owned all to you everything he told me your life was his and i have promised him that you shall live you have promised him that i shall live yes but sir you spoke of vigilance and protection are you a doctor yes the best you can have at the present time believe me but you say you have watched said valentine uneasily where have you been i have not seen you the count extended his hand towards the library i was hidden behind that door he said which leads into the next house which i have rented valentine turned her eyes away and with an indignant expression of pride and modest fear exclaimed sir i think you have been guilty of an unparalleled intrusion and that what you call protection is more like an insult valentine he answered during my long watch over you all i have observed has been what people visited you what nourishment was prepared and what beverage was served then when the latter appeared dangerous to me i entered as i have now done and substituted in the place of the poison a healthful draught 
which instead of producing the death intended caused life to circulate in your veins poison death exclaimed valentine half believing herself under the influence of some feverish hallucination what are you saying sir hush my child said monte cristo again placing his finger upon her lips i did say poison and death but drink some of this and the count took a bottle from his pocket containing a red liquid of which he poured a few drops into the glass drink this and then take nothing more to-night valentine stretched out her hand but scarcely had she touched the glass when she drew back in fear monte cristo took the glass drank half its contents and then presented it to valentine who smiled and swallowed the rest oh yes she exclaimed i recognize the flavor of my nocturnal beverage which refreshed me so much and seemed to ease my aching brain thank you sir thank you this is how you have lived during the last four nights valentine said the count but oh how i passed at that time oh the wretched hours i have endured the torture to which i have submitted when i saw the deadly poison poured into your glass and how i trembled lest you should drink it before i could find time to throw it away sir said valentine at the height of her terror you say you endured tortures when you saw the deadly poison poured into my glass but if you saw this you must also have seen the person who poured it yes valentine raised herself in bed and drew over her chest which appeared whiter than snow the embroidered cambric still moist with the cold dews of delirium to which were now added those of terror you saw the person repeated the young girl yes repeated the count what you tell me is horrible sir you wish to make me believe something too dreadful what attempt to murder me in my father's house in my room on my bed of sickness oh leave me sir you are tempting me you make me doubt the goodness of providence it is impossible it cannot be are you the first that this hand has stricken have you not seen monsieur de saint meron madame de saint meron barois all fall would not monsieur noirtier also have fallen victim had not the treatment he has been pursuing for the last three years neutralized the effects of the poison oh heaven said valentine is this the reason my grandpapa has made me share all his beverages during the last month and have they all tasted of a slightly bitter flavour like that of dried orange peel oh yes yes then that explains all said monte cristo your grandfather knows then that a poisoner lives here perhaps he even suspects the person he has been fortifying you his beloved child against the fatal effects of the poison which has failed because your system was already impregnated with it but even this would have availed little against a more deadly medium of death employed four days ago which is generally but too fatal but who then is this assassin this murderer let me also ask you a question have you never seen any one enter into your room at night oh yes i have frequently seen shadows pass close to me approach and disappear but i took them for visions raised by my feverish imagination and indeed when you entered 
I thought I was under the influence of delirium. Then you do not know who it is that attempts your life. No, said Valentine. Who could desire my death? You shall know it now, then, said Monte Cristo, listening. How do you mean? said Valentine, looking anxiously around. Because you are not feverish or delirious to-night, but thoroughly awake. Midnight is striking, which is the hour murderers choose. Oh, heavens! exclaimed Valentine, wiping off the drops which ran down her forehead. Midnight struck slowly and sadly. Every hour seemed to strike with leaden weight upon the heart of the poor girl. Valentine, said the Count, summon up all your courage, still the beatings of your heart, do not let a sound escape you, and feign to be asleep. Then you will see. Valentine seized the Count's hand. I think I hear a noise, she said. Leave me. Good-bye, for the present, replied the Count, walking upon tiptoe towards the library door, and smiling with an expression so sad and paternal that the young girl's heart was filled with gratitude. Before closing the door, he turned around once more and said, "'Not a movement, not a word. Let them think you are asleep, or perhaps you may be killed before I have the power of helping you.' And with this fearful injunction the Count disappeared through the door, which noiselessly closed after him. End of chapter 100Chapter 101 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 101 Locusta. Valentine was alone. Two other clocks, slower than that of Saint Philippe du Roule, struck the hour of midnight from different directions, and excepting the rumbling of a few carriages, all was silent. Then Valentine's attention was engrossed by the clock in her room, which marked the seconds. She began counting them, remarking that they were much slower than the beatings of her heart, and still she doubted. The inoffensive Valentine could not imagine that anyone should desire her death. Why should they? To what end? What had she done to excite the malice of an enemy? There was no fear of her falling asleep. One terrible idea pressed upon her mind, that someone existed in the world who had attempted to assassinate her and who was about to endeavour to do so again. Supposing this person wearied at the inefficacy of the poison, should, as Monte Cristo intimated, have recourse to steel? What if the Count should have no time to run to her rescue? What if her last moments were approaching and she should never again see Morel? When this terrible chain of ideas presented itself, Valentine was nearly persuaded to ring the bell and call for help but through the door she fancied she saw the luminous eye of the Count, that eye which lived in her memory, and the recollection overwhelmed her with so much shame that she asked herself whether any amount of gratitude could ever repay his adventurous and devoted friendship. Twenty minutes, twenty tedious minutes, passed thus, then ten more, and at last the clock struck the half-hour. Just then, the sound of fingernails, slightly grating against the door of the library, informed Valentine that the Count was still watching, and recommended her to do the same, at the same time 
on the opposite side, that is, towards Edward's room, Valentine fancied that she heard the creaking of the floor. She listened attentively, holding her breath till she was nearly suffocated. The lock turned, and the door slowly opened. Valentine had raised herself upon her elbow, and had scarcely time to throw herself down on the bed and shade her eyes with her arm. Then, trembling, agitated, and her heart beating with indescribable terror, she awaited the event. Someone approached the bed and drew back the curtains. Valentine summoned every effort and breathed with that regular respiration which announces tranquil sleep. Valentine, said a low voice. Still silent, Valentine had promised not to awake. Then everything was still, excepting that Valentine heard the almost noiseless sound of some liquid being poured into the glass she had just emptied. Then she ventured to open her eyelids and glance over her extended arm. She saw a woman in a white dressing gown pouring a liquor from a phial into her glass. During this short time, Valentine must have held her breath or moved in some slight degree, for the woman, disturbed, stopped and leaned over the bed in order the better to ascertain whether Valentine slept. It was Madame de Villefort. On recognizing her stepmother, Valentine could not repress a shudder, which caused a vibration in the bed. Madame de Villefort instantly stepped back close to the wall, and there, shaded by the bed curtains, she silently and attentively watched the slightest movement of Valentine. The latter recollected the terrible caution of Monte Cristo. She fancied that the hand not holding the file clasped a long, sharp knife. Then, collecting all her remaining strength, she forced herself to close her eyes. But this simple operation upon the most delicate organs of our frame, generally so easy to accomplish, became almost impossible at this moment. So much did curiosity struggle to retain the eyelid open and learn the truth. Madame de Villefort, however, reassured by the silence, which was alone disturbed by the regular breathing of Valentine, again extended her hand, and half hidden by the curtains, succeeded in emptying the contents of the file into the glass. Then she retired so gently that Valentine did not know she had left the room. She only witnessed the withdrawal of the arm, the fair round arm of a woman but twenty-five years old, and who yet spread death around her. It is impossible to describe the sensations experienced by Valentine during the minute and a half Madame de Villefort remained in the room. The grating against the library door aroused the young girl from the stupor in which she was plunged, and which almost amounted to insensibility. She raised her head with an effort. The noiseless door again turned on its hinges, and the Count of Monte Cristo reappeared. "'Well,' said he, "'do you still doubt?' "'Oh!' murmured the young girl. "'Have you seen?' "'Alas! Did you recognize?" Valentine groaned. "'Oh, yes,' she said. "'I saw, but I cannot believe.' "'Would you rather die, then, and cause Maximilian's death?' "'Oh!' repeated the young girl, almost bewildered. "'Can I not leave the house? Can I not escape?' "'Valentine, the hand which now threatens you will pursue you everywhere. Your servants will be seduced with gold, 
and death will be offered to you disguised in every shape. You will find it in the water you drink from the spring, in the fruit you pluck from the tree. But did you not say that my kind grandfather's precaution had neutralized the poison? Yes, but not against a strong dose. The poison will be changed and the quantity increased. He took the glass and raised it to his lips. It is already done, he said. Brucine is no longer employed, but a simple narcotic. I can recognize the flavor of the alcohol in which it has been dissolved. If you had taken what Madame de Villefort has poured into your glass, Valentine, Valentine, you would have been doomed. But, exclaimed the young girl, why am I thus pursued? Why? Are you so kind, so good, so unsuspicious of ill, that you cannot understand, Valentine? No, I have never injured her. But you are rich, Valentine. You have two hundred thousand livres a year, and you prevent her son from enjoying those two hundred thousand livres. How so? The fortune is not her gift, but is inherited from my relations. Certainly, and that is why Monsieur and Madame de Saint Meron have died. That is why Monsieur Noirtier was sentenced the day he made you his heir. That is why you, in your turn, are to die. It is because your father would inherit your property, and your brother, his only son, succeed to his. Edward, poor child, are all these crimes committed on his account? Ah, then you at length understand. Heaven grant that this may not be visited upon him. Valentine, you are an angel. But why is my grandfather allowed to live? It was considered that you dead, the fortune would naturally revert to your brother, unless he were disinherited, and besides, the crime appearing useless, it would be folly to commit it. And is it possible that this frightful combination of crimes has been invented by a woman? Do you recollect, in the arbor of the Hotel des Postes at Perugia, seeing a man in a brown cloak whom your stepmother was questioning upon Aqua Tofana, well, ever since then, the infernal project has been ripening in her brain. Ah, then indeed, sir, said the sweet girl, bathed in tears. I see that I am condemned to die. No, Valentine, for I have foreseen all their plots. No, your enemy is conquered, since we know her, and you will live, Valentine, live to be happy yourself and to confer happiness upon a noble heart. But to ensure this, you must rely on me. Command me, sir. What am I to do? You must blindly take what I give you. Alas, were it only for my own sake, I should prefer to die. You must not confide in anyone, not even in your father. My father is not engaged in this fearful plot, is he, sir? asked Valentine, clasping her hands. No, and yet your father, a man accustomed to judicial accusations, ought to have known that all these deaths have not happened naturally. It is he who should have watched over you. He should have occupied my place. He should have emptied that glass. He should have risen against the assassin. Spectre against spectre, 
he murmured in a low voice as he concluded his sentence. "'Sir,' said Valentine, "'I will do all I can to live, for there are two beings whose existence depends on mine, my grandfather and Maximilian.' "'I will watch over them, as I have over you.' "'Well, sir, do as you will with me.' And then she added in a low voice, "'Oh, heavens, what will befall me?' "'Whatever may happen, Valentine, do not be alarmed. "'Though you suffer, though you lose sight, hearing, consciousness, fear nothing. "'Though you should awake and be ignorant where you are, still do not fear. "'Even though you should find yourself in a sepulchral vault or coffin, "'reassure yourself, then, and say to yourself, "'At this moment, a friend, a father,' who lives for my happiness and that of Maximilian, watches over me. Alas! Alas, what a fearful extremity! Valentine, would you rather denounce your stepmother? I would rather die a hundred times. Oh, yes, die! No, you will not die. But will you promise me, whatever happens, that you will not complain, but hope? I will think of Maximilian. You are my own darling child, Valentine. I alone can save you, and I will. Valentine, in the extremity of her terror, joined her hands, for she felt that the moment had arrived to ask for courage, and began to pray. And while uttering little more than incoherent words, she forgot that her white shoulders had no other covering than her long hair, and that the pulsations of her heart could be seen through the lace of her nightdress. Monte Cristo gently laid his hand on the young girl's arm, drew the velvet coverlet close to her throat, and said with a paternal smile, "'My child, believe in my devotion to you as you believe in the goodness of Providence and the love of Maximilian.' Then he drew from his waistcoat pocket the little emerald box, raised the golden lid, and took from it a pastille about the size of a pea, which he placed in her hand. She took it, and looked attentively on the Count. There was an expression on the face of her intrepid protector which commanded her veneration. She evidently interrogated him by her look. "'Yes,' said he. Valentine carried the pastille to her mouth and swallowed it. "'And now, my dear child, adieu for the present.' I will try and gain a little sleep, for you are saved. Go, said Valentine. Whatever happens, I promise you not to fear. Monte Cristo, for some time, kept his eyes fixed on the young girl who gradually fell asleep, yielding to the effects of the narcotic the Count had given her. Then he took the glass, emptied three parts of the contents in the fireplace, that it might be supposed Valentine had taken it, and replaced it on the table. Then he disappeared, after throwing a farewell glance on Valentine, who slept with the confidence and innocence of an angel. End of chapter 101《Chapter 102. Valentine. The night-light continued to burn on the chimney-piece, 
exhausting the last drops of oil which floated on the surface of the water. The globe of the lamp appeared of a reddish hue, and the flame, brightening before it expired, threw out the last flickerings which an inanimate object have been so often compared with the convulsions of a human creature in its final agonies. A dull and dismal light was shed over the bedclothes and curtains surrounding the young girl. All noise in the streets had ceased, and the silence was frightful. It was then that the door of Edward's room opened, and a head we have before noticed appeared in the glass opposite. It was Madame de Villefort, who came to witness the effects of the drink she had prepared. She stopped in the doorway, listened for a moment to the flickering of the lamp, the only sound in that deserted room, and then advanced to the table to see if Valentine's glass was empty. It was still about a quarter full, as we before stated. Madame de Villefort emptied the contents into the ashes, which she disturbed that they might the more readily absorb the liquid. Then she carefully rinsed the glass, and wiping it with her handkerchief, replaced it on the table. If anyone could have looked into the room just then, he would have noticed the hesitation with which Madame de Villefort approached the bed and looked fixedly on Valentine. The dim light, the profound silence, and the gloomy thoughts inspired by the hour, and still more by her own conscience, all combined to produce a sensation of fear. The prisoner was terrified at the contemplation of her own work. At length she rallied, drew aside the curtain, and leaning over the pillow, gazed intently on Valentine. The young girl no longer breathed. No breath issued through the half-closed teeth. The white lips no longer quivered. The eyes were suffused with a bluish vapour, and the long black lashes rested on a cheek white as wax. Madame de Villefort gazed upon the face so expressive even in its stillness. Then she ventured to raise the coverlet and press her hand upon the young girl's heart. It was cold and motionless. She only felt the pulsation in her own fingers and withdrew her hand with a shudder. One arm was hanging out of the bed, from shoulder to elbow, which was moulded after the arms of Germain Pilon's graces. But the forearm seemed to be slightly distorted by convulsion, and the hand so delicately formed was resting with stiff, outstretched fingers on the framework of the bed. The nails, too, were turning blue. Madame de Villefort had no longer any doubt. All was over. She had consummated the last terrible work she had to accomplish. There was no more to do in the room. So the poisoner retired stealthily, as though fearing to hear the sound of her own footsteps. But as she withdrew, she still held aside the curtain, absorbed in the irresistible attraction always exerted by the picture of death, so long as it is merely mysterious and does not excite disgust. Just then, the lamp again flickered. The noise startled Madame de Villefort, who shuddered and dropped the curtain. Immediately afterwards, the light expired and the room was plunged in frightful obscurity, while the clock at that minute struck half-past four. Overpowered with agitation, the poisoner succeeded in groping her way to the door, and reached her room in an agony of fear. The darkness lasted two hours longer. Then by degrees a cold light crept through the Venetian blinds, until at length it revealed the objects in the room. About this time the nurse's cough was heard on the stairs, and the woman entered the room with a cup in her hand. To the tender eye of a father or a lover, the first glance would have sufficed to reveal Valentine's condition, 
but to this hireling Valentine only appeared to sleep. "'Good!' she exclaimed, approaching the table. "'She has taken part of her draught. The glass is three-quarters empty.' Then she went to the fireplace and lit the fire, and although she had just left her bed, she could not resist the temptation offered by Valentine's sleep, so she threw herself into an armchair to snatch a little more rest. The clock striking eight awoke her. Astonished at the prolonged slumber of the patient, and frightened to see that the arm was still hanging out of the bed, she advanced towards Valentine, and for the first time noticed the white lips. She tried to replace the arm, but it moved with a frightful rigidity which could not deceive a sick nurse. She screamed aloud, then running to the door exclaimed, "'Help! Help!' "'What is the matter?' asked Monsieur d'Avrigny at the foot of the stairs, it being the hour he usually visited her. "'What is it?' asked Villefort, rushing from his room. "'Doctor, do you hear them call for help?' "'Yes, yes. Let us hasten up. It was in Valentine's room.' But before the doctor and the father could reach the room, the servants who were on the same floor had entered, and seeing Valentine pale and motionless on her bed, they lifted up their hands towards heaven, and stood transfixed as though struck by lightning. "'Call Madame de Villefort! Wake, Madame de Villefort!' cried the procureur from the door of his chamber, which apparently he scarcely dared to leave. But instead of obeying him, the servant stood watching Monsieur d'Arigny, who ran to Valentine and raised her in his arms. "'What? This one too?' he exclaimed. "'Oh, where will be the end?' Villefort rushed into the room. "'What are you saying, doctor?' he exclaimed, raising his hands to heaven. "'I say that Valentine is dead,' replied d'Avrigny, in a voice terrible in its solemn calm. Monsieur de Villefort staggered and buried his head in the bed. On the exclamation of the doctor and the cry of the father, the servants all fled with muttered imprecations. They were heard running down the stairs and through the long passages. Then there was a rush in the court. Afterwards all was still. They had, one and all, deserted the accursed house. Just then, Madame de Villefort, in the act of slipping on her dressing-gown, threw aside the drapery, and for a moment stood motionless, as though interrogating the occupants of the room, while she endeavoured to call up some rebellious tears. On a sudden, she stepped, or rather bounded, with outstretched arms towards the table. She saw d'Avrigny curiously examining the glass, which she felt certain of having emptied during the night. It was now a third full, just as it was when she threw the contents into the ashes. The spectre of Valentine rising before the poisoner would have alarmed her less, it was indeed the same colour as the draught she had poured into the glass, and which Valentine had drunk. It was indeed the poison which could not deceive Monsieur d'Avrigny, which he now examined so closely. It was doubtless a miracle from heaven, that notwithstanding her precautions there should be some trace, some proof remaining to reveal the crime. While Madame de Villefort remained rooted to the spot like a statue of terror, and Villefort, with his head hidden in the bedclothes, saw nothing around him. D'Avrigny approached the window, that he might better examine the contents of the glass, and dipping the tip of his finger in, tasted it. "'Ah!' he exclaimed. "'It is no longer brucine that is used. Let me see what it is.' Then he ran to one of the cupboards in Valentine's room, 
which had been transformed into a medicine closet, and taking from its silver case a small bottle of nitric acid, dropped a little of it into the liquor, which immediately changed to a blood-red colour. "'Ah!' exclaimed d'Avrigny, in a voice in which the horror of a judge unveiling the truth was mingled with the delight of a student making a discovery. Madame de Villefort was overpowered. Her eyes first flashed and then swam. She staggered towards the door and disappeared. Directly afterwards the distant sound of a heavy weight falling on the ground was heard, but no one paid any attention to it. The nurse was engaged in watching the chemical analysis, and Villefort was still absorbed in grief. Monsieur d'Avrigny alone had followed Madame de Villefort with his eyes and watched her hurried retreat. He lifted up the drapery over the entrance to Edward's room, and his eye reaching as far as Madame de Villefort's apartment. He beheld her, extended lifeless on the floor. "'Go to the assistance of Madame de Villefort,' he said to the nurse. "'Madame de Villefort is ill.' "'But Mademoiselle de Villefort,' stammered the nurse. "'Mademoiselle de Villefort no longer requires help,' said d'Avrigny, "'since she is dead.' "'Dead! Dead!' groaned forth Villefort, in a paroxysm of grief, which was the more terrible from the novelty of the sensation in the iron heart of that man. "'Dead?' repeated a third voice. "'Who said Valentine was dead?' The two men turned round, and saw Morel standing at the door, pale and terror-stricken. This is what had happened. At the usual time, Morel had presented himself at the little door leading to Noirtier's room. Contrary to custom, the door was open, and having no occasion to ring, he entered. He waited for a moment in the hall, and called for a servant to conduct him to Monsieur Noirtier, but no one answered, the servants having, as we know, deserted the house. Morel had no particular reason for uneasiness. Monte Cristo had promised him that Valentine should live, and so far he had always fulfilled his word. Every night the Count had given him news, which was the next morning confirmed by Noirtier. Still, this extraordinary silence appeared strange to him, and he called a second and third time. Still no answer. Then he determined to go up. Noirtier's room was opened like all the rest. The first thing he saw was the old man sitting in his armchair in his usual place. But his eyes expressed alarm, which was confirmed by the pallor which overspread his features. "'How are you, sir?' asked Morel with a sickness of heart. "'Well,' answered the old man by closing his eyes, but his appearance manifested increasing uneasiness. "'You are thoughtful, sir.' continued Morel. "'You want something. Shall I call one of the servants?' "'Yes,' replied Noirtier. Morel pulled the bell, but though he nearly broke the cord, no one answered. He turned towards Noirtier, the pallor and anguish expressed on his countenance momentarily increased. "'Oh!' exclaimed Morel. "'Why do they not come? Is anyone ill in the house?' The eyes of Noirtier seemed as though they would start from their sockets. "'What is the matter? You alarm me! Valentine! Valentine!' "'Yes, yes,' signed Noirtier. Maximilien tried to speak, but he could articulate nothing. He staggered and supported himself against the wainscot. 
Then he pointed to the door. "'Yes, yes, yes,' continued the old man. Maximilien rushed up the little staircase, while Noirtier's eyes seemed to say, "'Quicker, quicker!' In a minute the young man darted through several rooms, till at length he reached Valentine's. There was no occasion to push the door. It was wide open. A sob was the only sound he heard. He saw, as though in a mist, a black figure kneeling and buried in a confused mass of white drapery. A terrible fear transfixed him. It was then he heard a voice exclaim, "'Valentine is dead!' And another voice, which like an echo repeated, "'Dead! Dead!' End of chapter 102「ワンハルンツリー」of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。Chapter one hundred and three Maximilien Villefort rose, half ashamed of being surprised in such a paroxysm of grief. The terrible office he had held for twenty five years had succeeded in making him more or less than man. His glance, at first wandering, fixed itself upon Morel. "'Who are you, sir?' he asked. "'That forget that this is not the manner to enter a house stricken with death. Go, sir, go!' But Morel remained motionless. He could not detach his eyes from that disordered bed and the pale corpse of the young girl who was lying on it. "'Go! Do you hear?' said Villefort, while Davrigny advanced to lead Morel out. Maximilien stared for a moment at the corpse, gazed all round the room, then upon the two men. He opened his mouth to speak, but finding it impossible to give utterance to the innumerable ideas that occupied his brain, he went out, thrusting his hands through his hair, in such a manner that Villefort and Davrigny, for a moment diverted from the engrossing topic, exchanged glances which seemed to say, "'He is mad!' But in less than five minutes the staircase groaned beneath an extraordinary weight. Morel was seen carrying, with superhuman strength, the armchair containing Noirtier upstairs. When he reached the landing, he placed the armchair on the floor and rapidly rolled it into Valentine's room. This could only have been accomplished by means of unnatural strength supplied by powerful excitement. But the most fearful spectacle was Noirtier being pushed towards the bed, his face expressing all his meaning, and his eyes supplying the want of every other faculty. That pale face and flaming glance appeared to Villefort like a frightful apparition. Each time he had been brought into contact with his father, something terrible had happened. "'See what they have done!' cried Morel, with one hand leaning on the back of the chair, and the other extended towards Valentine. "'See, my father, see!' Villefort drew back, and looked with astonishment on the young man, who, almost a stranger to him, called Noirtier his father. At this moment the whole soul of the old man seemed centred in his eyes, which became bloodshot. The veins of the throat swelled, his cheeks and temples became purple, as though he was struck with epilepsy. Nothing was wanting to complete this but the utterance of a cry— and the cry issued from his pores, if we may thus speak, 
a cry frightful in its silence. D'Avrigny rushed towards the old man and made him inhale a powerful restorative. Sir, cried Morel, seizing the moist hand of the paralytic, they ask me who I am, and what right I have to be here. Oh, you know it. Tell them, tell them. And the young man's voice was choked by sobs. As for the old man, his chest heaved with his panting respiration. One could have thought that he was undergoing the agonies preceding death. At length, happier than the young man, who sobbed without weeping, tears glistened in the eyes of Noirtier. "'Tell them,' said Morel in a hoarse voice, "'tell them that I am her betrothed. Tell them she was my beloved, my noble girl, my only blessing in the world. Tell them, oh, tell them that corpse belongs to me.' The young man, overwhelmed by the weight of his anguish, fell heavily on his knees before the bed, which his fingers grasped with convulsive energy. D'Avrigny, unable to bear the sight of this touching emotion, turned away, and Villefort, without seeking any further explanation, and attracted towards him by the irresistible magnetism which draws us towards those who have loved the people for whom we mourn, extended his hand towards the young man. But Morel saw nothing. He had grasped the hand of Valentine, and, unable to weep, vented his agony in groans as he bit the sheets. For some time nothing was heard in that chamber but sobs, exclamations, and prayers. At length Villefort, the most composed of all, spoke. "'Sir,' said he to Maximilien, "'you say you loved Valentine, that you were betrothed to her. I knew nothing of this engagement of this love, yet I, her father, forgive you, for I see that your grief is real and deep, and besides my own sorrow it is too great for anger to find a place in my heart. But you see that the angel whom you hoped for has left this earth. She has nothing more to do with the adoration of men. Take a last farewell, sir, of her sad remains. Take the hand you expected to possess once more within your own, and then separate yourself from her forever. Valentine now requires only the ministrations of the priest. "'You are mistaken, sir,' exclaimed Morel, raising himself on one knee, his heart pierced by a more acute pang than any he had yet felt. "'You are mistaken. Valentine, dying as she has, not only requires a priest, but an avenger. You, Monsieur de Villefort, sent for the priest. I will be the avenger.' "'What do you mean, sir?' asked Villefort, trembling at the new idea inspired by the delirium of Morel. "'I tell you, sir, that two persons exist in you. The father has mourned sufficiently. Now let the procureur fulfil his office.' The eyes of Noirtier glistened, and Avrigny approached. "'Gentlemen,' said Morel, reading all that passed through the minds of the witnesses to the scene, I know what I am saying, and you know as well as I do what I am about to say. Valentine has been assassinated. Villefort hung his head. D'Avrigny approached nearer, and Noirtier said yes with his eyes. Now, sir, continued Morel, in these days no one can disappear by violent means, 
without some inquiries being made as to the cause of her disappearance. Even were she not a young, beautiful and adorable creature like Valentine, Monsieur Procureur, said Morel with increasing vehemence, no mercy is allowed. I denounce the crime. It is your place to seek the assassin. The young man's implacable eyes interrogated Villefort, who, on his side, glanced from Noirtier to Darigny, but instead of finding sympathy in the eyes of the doctor and his father, he only saw an expression as inflexible as that of Maximilian. Yes, indicated the old man. Assuredly, said Davrigny. Sir, said Villefort, striving to struggle against this triple force and his own emotion, sir, you are deceived. No one commits crimes here. I am stricken by fate. It is horrible indeed, but no one assassinates. The eyes of Noirtier lighted up with rage, and Davrigny prepared to speak. Morel, however, extended his arm and commanded silence. "'And I say that murders are committed here,' said Morel, whose voice, though lower in tone, lost none of its terrible distinctness. "'I tell you that this is the fourth victim within the last four months. I tell you Valentine's life was attempted by poison four days ago, though she escaped, owing to the precautions of Monsieur Noirtier. I tell you that the dose has been double, the poison changed, and that this time it has succeeded.' I tell you that you know these things as well as I do, since this gentleman has forewarned you, both as doctor and as a friend. Oh, you rave, sir, exclaimed Villefort, in vain endeavouring to escape the net in which he was taken. I rave, said Morel. Well, then, I appeal to Monsieur Davrigny himself. Ask him, sir, if he recollects the words he uttered in the garden of this house on the night of Madame de saint Méran's death. You thought yourselves alone, and talked about that tragical death, and the fatality you mentioned then is the same which has caused the murder of Valentine. Villefort and Davrigny exchanged looks. Yes, yes, continued Morel, recall the scene, for the words you thought were only given to silence and solitude fell into my ears. Certainly, after witnessing the culpable indolence manifested by Monsieur de Villefort towards his own relations, I ought to have denounced him to the authorities. Then I should not have been an accomplice to thy death, as I now am. Sweet, beloved Valentine! But the accomplice shall become the avenger. This fourth murder is apparent to all. And if thy father abandon thee, Valentine, it is I, and I swear it, that shall pursue the assassin." And this time, as though nature had at least taken compassion on the vigorous frame, nearly bursting with its own strength, the words of Morel were stifled in his throat. His breast heaved, the tears so long rebellious gushed from his eyes, and he threw himself weeping on his knees by the side of the bed. Then Davrigny spoke. "'And I too,' he exclaimed in a low voice, I unite with Monsieur Morel in demanding justice for crime. My blood boils at the idea of having encouraged a murderer by my cowardly concession. Oh, merciful heavens, murmured Villefort. Morel raised his head, and reading the eyes of the old man, which gleamed with unnatural lustre. Stay, 
he said. Monsieur Noirtier wishes to speak. Yes, indicated Noirtier with an expression the more terrible from all his faculties being centred in his glance. Do you know the assassin? asked Morel. Yes, replied Noirtier. And will you direct us? exclaimed the young man. Listen, Monsieur d'Avrigny, listen. Noirtier looked upon Morel with one of those melancholy smiles which had so often made Valentine happy, and thus fixed his attention. Then, having riveted the eyes of his interlocutor on his own, he glanced towards the door. "'Do you wish me to leave?' said Morel, sadly. "'Yes,' replied Noirtier. "'Alas! Alas, sir! Have pity on me!' The old man's eyes remained fixed on the door. "'May I at least return?' asked Morel. "'Yes.' "'Must I leave alone?' "'No.' "'Whom am I to take with me? The procureur?' "'No.' "'The doctor?' "'Yes.' "'You wish to remain alone with Monsieur de Villefort?' "'Yes.' "'But can he understand you?' yes oh said villefort inexpressibly delighted to think that the inquiries were to be made by him alone oh be satisfied i can understand my father d'avrigny took the young man's arm and led him out of the room a more than death-like silence then reigned in the house at the end of a quarter of an hour a faltering footstep was heard and Villefort appeared at the door of the apartment where d'Avrigny and Morel had been staying, one absorbed in meditation, the other in grief. "'You can come,' he said, and led them back to Noirtier. Morel looked attentively on Villefort. His face was livid, large drops rolled down his face, and in his fingers he held the fragments of a quill pen which he had torn to atoms. "'Gentlemen!' he said in a hoarse voice, "'Give me your word of honour that this horrible secret shall forever remain buried amongst ourselves.' The two men drew back. "'I entreat you,' continued Villefort. "'But,' said Morel, "'the culprit, the murderer, the assassin—' "'Do not alarm yourself, sir. Justice will be done,' said Villefort. "'My father has revealed the culprit's name.' My father thirsts for revenge as much as you do, yet even he conjures you as I do to keep this secret. Do you not, father? Yes, resolutely replied Noirtier. Morel suffered an exclamation of horror and surprise to escape him. Oh, sir, said Villefort, arresting Maximilien by the arm, if my father, the inflexible man, makes this request, it is because he knows be assured that valentine will be terribly revenged is it not so father the old man made a sign in the affirmative villefort continued he knows me and i have pledged my word to him rest assured gentlemen that within three days in a less time than justice would demand the revenge i shall have taken for the murder of my child will be such as to make the boldest heart tremble and as he spoke these words, he ground his teeth and grasped the old man's senseless hand. 
"'Will this promise be fulfilled, Monsieur Noirtier?' asked Morel, while Davrigny looked inquiringly. "'Yes,' replied Noirtier, with an expression of sinister joy. "'Swear, then,' said Villefort, joining the hands of Morel and Davrigny. "'Swear that you will spare the honour of my house, and leave me to avenge my child.' Davrigny turned round and uttered a very feeble, "'Yes.' but Morel, disengaging his hand, rushed to the bed, and after having pressed the cold lips of Valentine with his own, hurriedly left, uttering a long, deep groan of despair and anguish. We have before stated that all the servants had fled. Monsieur de Villefort was therefore obliged to request Monsieur d'Avrigny to superintend all the arrangements consequent upon a death in a large city, more especially a death under such suspicious circumstances. It was something terrible to witness the silent agony, the mute despair of Noirtier, whose tears silently rolled down his cheeks. Villefort retired to his study, and Davrigny left to summon the doctor of the mayoralty, whose office it is to examine bodies after decease, and who is expressly named the doctor of the dead. Monsieur Noirtier could not be persuaded to quit his grandchild. At the end of a quarter of an hour, Monsieur d'Avrigny returned with his associate. They found the outer gate closed, and not a servant remaining in the house. Villefort himself was obliged to open to them. But he stopped on the landing. He had not the courage to again visit the death chamber. The two doctors, therefore, entered the room alone. Noirtier was near the bed, pale, motionless, and silent as the corpse. The district doctor approached with the indifference of a man accustomed to spend half his time amongst the dead. He then lifted the sheet which was placed over the face, and just unclosed the lips. "'Alas!' said d'Avrigny, "'she is indeed dead, poor child.' "'Yes,' answered the doctor laconically, dropping the sheet he had raised. Noirtier uttered a kind of hoarse, rattling sound. The old man's eyes sparkled and the good doctor understood that he wished to behold his child. He therefore approached the bed, and while his companion was dipping the fingers with which he had touched the lips of the corpse in chloride of lime, he uncovered the calm and pale face, which looked like that of a sleeping angel. A tear, which appeared in the old man's eye, expressed his thanks to the doctor. The doctor of the dead then laid his permit on the corner of the table and, having fulfilled his duty, was conducted out by Davrigny. Villefort met them at the door of his study. Having, in a few words, thanked the district doctor, he turned to Davrigny and said, "'And now the priest.' "'Is there any particular priest you wish to pray with Valentine?' asked Davrigny. "'No,' said Villefort. "'Fetch the nearest.' "'The nearest,' said the district doctor, is a good Italian abbe, who lives next door to you. Shall I call on him as I pass? D'Avrigny, said Villefort, be so kind, I beseech you, as to accompany this gentleman. Here is the key of the door, so that you can go in and out as you please. You will bring the priest with you, and will oblige me by introducing him into my child's room. Do you wish to see him? I only wish to be alone. You will excuse me, will you not? A priest can understand a father's grief. 
and Monsieur de Villefort, giving the key to D'Arigny, again bade farewell to the strange doctor, and retired to his study, where he began to work. For some temperaments, work is a remedy for all afflictions. As the doctors entered the street, they saw a man in a cassock standing on the threshold of the next door. "'This is the abbé of whom I spoke,' said the doctor to D'Avrigny. D'Avrigny accosted the priest. "'Sir,' he said, "'are you disposed to confer a great obligation to an unhappy father who has just lost his daughter? I mean Monsieur de Villefort, the king's attorney.' "'Ah,' said the priest in a marked Italian accent, "'yes, I have heard that death is in that house.' "'Then I need not tell you what kind of service he requires of you.' "'I was about to offer myself, sir,' said the priest. "'It is our mission to forestall our duties.' "'It is a young girl.' "'I know it, sir. The servants who fled from the house informed me.' I also know that her name is Valentine, and I have already prayed for her. Thank you, sir, said D'Avrigny. Since you have commenced your sacred office, deign to continue it. Come and watch by the dead, and all the wretched family will be grateful to you. I am going, sir, and I do not hesitate to say that no prayers will be more fervent than mine. D'Avrigny took the priest's hand, and without meeting Villefort, who was engaged in his study, they reached Valentine's room, which on the following night was to be occupied by the undertakers. On entering the room, Noirtier's eyes met those of the abbé, and no doubt he read some particular expression in them, for he remained in the room. D'Avrigny recommended the attention of the priest to the living as well as to the dead, and the abbé promised to devote his prayers to Valentine and his attentions to Noirtier. In order, doubtless, that he might not be disturbed while fulfilling his sacred mission, the priest rose as soon as D'Avrigny departed, and not only bolted the door through which the doctor had just left, but also that leading to Madame de Villefort's room. End of chapter 103《Chapter 104 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 104 Danglars' Signature. The next morning dawned dull and cloudy. During the night, the undertakers had executed their melancholy office and wrapped the corpse in the winding sheet, which, whatever may be said about the equality of death, is at least a last proof of the luxury so pleasing in life. This winding-sheet was nothing more than a beautiful piece of cambric, which the young girl had bought a fortnight before. During the evening two men, engaged for the purpose, had carried Noirtier from Valentine's room into his own, and, contrary to all expectation, there was no difficulty in withdrawing him from his child. The Abbe Boussoni had watched till daylight, and then left without calling anyone. D'Avrigny returned about eight o'clock in the morning. He met Villefort on his way to Noirtier's room, and accompanied him to see how the old man had slept. They found him in the large armchair which served him for a bed, enjoying a calm, nay, almost a smiling sleep. 
they both stood in amazement at the door see said d'avrigny to villefort nature knows how to alleviate the deepest sorrow no one can say that monsieur noirtier did not love his child and yet he sleeps yes you are right replied villefort surprised he sleeps indeed and this is the most strange since the least contradiction keeps him awake all night grief has stunned him replied d'avrigny and they both returned thoughtfully to the procureur's study see i have not slept said villefort showing his undisturbed bed grief does not stun me i have not been in bed for two nights but then look at my desk see what i have written during these two days and nights i have filled those papers and have made out the accusation against the assassin benedetto oh work work my passion my joy my delight it is for thee to alleviate my sorrows and he convulsively grasped the hand of d'avrigny do you require my services now asked d'avrigny no said villefort only return again at eleven o'clock at twelve the the oh heavens my poor poor child and the procureur again becoming a man lifted up his eyes and groaned shall you be present in the reception room no i have a cousin who has undertaken this sad office i shall work doctor when i work i forget everything and indeed no sooner had the doctor left the room than he was again absorbed in study on the doorsteps d'avrigny met the cousin whom villefort had mentioned a personage as insignificant in our story as in the world he occupied one of those beings designed from their birth to make themselves useful to others he was punctual dressed in black with crape around his hat and presented himself at his cousin's with a face made up for the occasion and which he could alter as might be required at twelve o'clock the morning coaches rolled into the paved court and the rue du faubourg saint honore was filled with a crowd of idlers equally pleased to witness the festivities or the mourning of the rich and who rush with the same avidity to a funeral procession as to the marriage of a duchess gradually the reception room filled and some of our old friends made their appearance we mean debray chateau renaud and beauchamp accompanied by all the leading men of the day at the bar in literature or the army for monsieur de villefort moved in the first parisian circles less owing to his social position than to his personal merit the cousin standing at the door ushered in the guests and it was rather a relief to the indifferent to see a person as unmoved as themselves and who did not exact a mournful face or forced tears as would have been the case with a father a brother or a lover those who were acquainted soon formed into little groups one of them was made of debray chateau renaud and beauchamp poor girl said debray like the rest paying an involuntary tribute to the sad event poor girl so young so rich so beautiful could you have imagined this scene chateau renaud when we saw her at the most three weeks ago about to sign that contract indeed no said chateau renaud did you know her i spoke to her once or twice at madame de morcerf's among the rest she appeared to me charming though rather melancholy where is her stepmother do you know she is spending the day with the wife of the worthy gentleman who is receiving us who is he 
"'Whom do you mean?' "'The gentleman who receives us. Is he a deputy?' "'Oh, no, I am condemned to witness those gentlemen every day,' said Beauchamp. "'But he is perfectly unknown to me.' "'Have you mentioned this death in your paper?' "'It has been mentioned, but the article is not mine. Indeed, I doubt if it would please Monsieur Villefort, for it says that if four successive deaths had happened anywhere else than in the house of the king's attorney, he would have interested himself somewhat more about it.' "'Still,' said Chateau Renaud, "'this Dr. Davrigny, who attends my mother, declares he is in despair about it. But whom are you seeking, Debray?' "'I am seeking the Count of Monte Cristo,' said the young man. "'I met him on the boulevard on my way here,' said Beauchamp. "'I think he is about to leave Paris. He was going to his banker.' "'His banker?' "'Donglar is his banker, is he not?' asked Chateau Renaud of Debray. "'I believe so,' replied the secretary with slight uneasiness. "'But Monte Cristo is not the only one I miss here. I do not see Morel.' "'Morel?' "'Do they know him?' asked Chateau Renaud. "'I think he has only been introduced to Madame de Villefort.' "'Still he ought to have been here,' said Debray. "'I wonder what will be talked about tonight. "'This funeral is the news of the day.' "'But hush! Here comes our minister of justice. "'He will feel obliged to make some little speech to the cousin.' "'And the three young men drew near to listen.' Beauchamp told the truth when he said that on his way to the funeral he had met Monte Cristo, who was directing his steps towards the Rue de la Chausse d'Antin to Monsieur Donglard. The banker saw the carriage of the Count enter the courtyard and advanced to meet him with a sad, though affable smile. Well, said he, extending his hand to Monte Cristo, I suppose you have come to sympathize with me. "'for indeed misfortune has taken possession of my house. "'When I perceived you, I was just asking myself "'whether I had not wished harm towards those poor Morcerf, "'which would have justified the proverb of "'He who wishes misfortunes to happen to others "'experiences them himself.' "'Well, on my word of honour, I answered, "'No, I wished no ill to Morcerf. "'He was a little proud, perhaps.' "'for a man who, like myself, has risen from nothing. "'But we all have our faults. "'Do you know, Count, that persons of our time of life, "'not that you belong to the class, you are still a young man, "'but, as I was saying, persons of our time of life "'have been very unfortunate this year. "'For example, look at the puritanical procureur, "'who has just lost his daughter and, in fact, nearly all his family, "'in so singular a manner.' Morcerf, dishonoured and dead, and then myself covered with ridicule through the villainy of Benedetto. Besides—' "'Besides what?' asked the Count. "'Alas, you do not know. What new calamity?' "'My daughter. Mademoiselle Danglars. Eugenie has left us.' "'Good heavens! What are you telling me?' "'The truth, my dear Count.' "'Oh, how happy you must be in not having either wife or children.' "'Do you think so?' "'Indeed I do. "'And so Mademoiselle Danglars? "'She could not endure the insult offered to us by that wretch, "'so she asked permission to travel. "'And is she gone?' "'The other night she left.' "'With Madame Danglars? 
no with our relation but still we have quite lost our dear eugenie for i doubt whether her pride will ever allow her to return to france still baron said monte cristo family griefs or indeed any other affliction which would crush a man whose child was his only treasure are endurable to a millionaire philosophers may well say and practical men will always support the opinion that money mitigates many trials and if you admit the efficacy of this sovereign balm you ought to be very easily consoled you the king of finance the focus of immeasurable power Danglars looked at him askance as though to ascertain whether he spoke seriously yes he answered if her fortune brings consolation i ought to be consoled i am rich so rich dear sir that your fortune resembles the pyramids if you wished to demolish them you could not and if it were possible you would not dare Danglars smiled at the good-natured pleasantry of the count that reminds me he said that when you entered i was on the point of signing five little bonds i have already signed two will you allow me to do the same to the others pray do so there was a moment's silence during which the noise of the banker's pen was alone heard while monte cristo examined the gilt mouldings on the ceiling are they spanish haitian or neapolitan bonds said monte cristo no said Danglars, smiling they are bonds on the bank of france payable to bearer stay count he added you who may be called the emperor if i claim the title of king of finance have you many pieces of paper of this size each worth a million the count took into his hands the papers which Danglars had so proudly presented to him and read to the governor of the bank please pay to my order from the fund deposited by me the sum of a million and charge the same to my account baron Danglars. one two three four five said monte cristo five millions why what a crisis you are this is how i transact business said Danglars. it is really wonderful said the count above all if as i suppose it is payable at sight it is indeed said Danglars. it is a fine thing to have such credit really it is only in france these things are done five millions on five little scraps of paper it must be seen to be believed you do not doubt it no you say so with an accent stay you shall be convinced take my clerk to the bank and you will see him leave it with an order on the treasury for the same sum no said monte cristo folding the five notes most decidedly not the thing is so curious i will make the experiment myself i am credited on you for six millions i have drawn nine hundred thousand francs you therefore still owe me five millions and a hundred thousand francs i will take the five scraps of paper that i now hold as bonds with your signature alone and here is a receipt in full for the six millions between us i had prepared it beforehand for i am much in want of money to-day and monte cristo placed the bonds in his pocket with one hand while with the other 
he held out the receipt to Donglars. If a thunderbolt had fallen at the banker's feet, he could not have experienced greater terror. What? he stammered. Do you mean to keep that money? Excuse me, excuse me, but I owe this money to the charity fund, a deposit which I promised to pay this morning. Oh, well, then, said Monte Cristo, I am not particular about these five notes. Pay me in a different form. I wished from curiosity to take these that I might be able to say that, without any advice or preparation, the house of Donglar had paid me five millions without a minute's delay. It would have been remarkable. But here are your bonds. Pay me differently. And he held the bonds towards Donglar, who seized them like a vulture extending its claws to withhold the food that is being wrested from its grasp. Suddenly he rallied, made a violent effort to restrain himself, and then a smile gradually widened the features of his disturbed countenance. Certainly, he said, your receipt is money. Oh, dear, yes, and if you were at Rome, the house of Thompson and French would make no more difficulty about paying the money on my receipt than you have just done. Pardon me, Count, pardon me. Then I may keep this money. Yes, said Donglar, while the perspiration started from the roots of his hair. Yes, keep it, uh, keep it. Monte Cristo replaced the notes in his pocket, with that indescribable expression which seemed to say, Come, reflect. If you repent, there is still time. No, said Danglars. No, decidedly no. Keep my signatures. But you know none are so formal as bankers in transacting business. I intended this money for the charity fund, and I seem to be robbing them if I did not pay them with these precise bonds. How absurd! As if one crown were not as good as another. Excuse me. And he began to laugh loudly, but nervously. Certainly I excuse you, said Monte Cristo graciously, and pocket them. And he placed the bonds in his pocket book. But, said Danglars, there is still a sum of one hundred thousand francs. Oh, a mere nothing, said Monte Cristo. The balance would come to about that sum, but keep it, and we shall be quits. Count, said Danglars, are you speaking seriously? I never joke with bankers, said Monte Cristo in a freezing manner, which repelled impertinence, and he turned to the door just as the valet de chambre announced, Monsieur de Beauville, receiver general of the charities. Ma foi, said Monte Cristo. I think I arrived just in time to obtain your signatures, or they would have been disputed with me. Danglars again became pale, and hastened to conduct the Count out. Monte Cristo exchanged a ceremonious bow with Monsieur de Beauville, who was standing in the waiting room, and who was introduced into Danglars' room as soon as the Count had left. The Count's sad face was illumined by a faint smile as he noticed the portfolio which the receiver-general held in his hand. At the door he found his carriage, and was immediately driven to the bank. Meanwhile, Danglars, repressing all emotion, advanced to meet the receiver-general. We need not say that a smile of condescension was stamped upon his lips. "'Good morning, creditor,' said he. 
for i wager anything it is the creditor who visits me you are right baron answered monsieur de beauville the charities present themselves to you through me the widows and orphans depute me to receive arms to the amount of five millions from you and yet they say orphans are to be pitied said danglars wishing to prolong the jest poor things here i am in their name said monsieur de beauville but uh, did you receive my letter yesterday yes i have brought my receipt my dear monsieur de beauville your widows and orphans must oblige me by waiting twenty-four hours since monsieur de monte cristo whom you just saw leaving here you did see him i think yes well well monsieur de monte cristo has just carried off their five millions how so the count has an unlimited credit upon me a credit opened by thompson and french of rome he came to demand five millions at once which i paid him with cheques on the bank my funds are deposited there and you can understand that if i draw out ten millions on the same day it will appear rather strange to the governor two days will be a different thing said danglars smiling come said beauville with a tone of entire incredulity five million to that gentleman who just left and who bowed to me as though he knew me perhaps he knows you though you do not know him monsieur de monte cristo knows everybody five million here is his receipt believe your own eyes monsieur de beauville took the paper danglars presented him and read received of baron danglars the sum of five million one hundred thousand francs to be repaid on demand by the house of thompson and french of rome it is really true said monsieur de beauville do you know the house of thompson and french yes i once had business to transact with it to the amount of two hundred thousand francs but since then i have not heard it mentioned it is one of the best houses in europe said danglars carelessly throwing down the receipt on his desk and he had five millions in your hands alone why this count of monte cristo must be a nabob indeed i do not know what he is he has three unlimited credits one on me one on rothschild and one on lafitte and you see he added carelessly he has given me the preference by leaving a balance of one hundred thousand francs monsieur de beauville manifested signs of extraordinary admiration i must visit him he said and obtain some pious grant from him oh you may be sure of him his charities alone amount to twenty thousand francs a month it is magnificent i will set before him the example of madame de morcerf and her son what example they gave all their fortune to the hospitals what fortune their own monsieur de morcerf's who is deceased for what reason because they would not spend money so guiltily acquired and what are they to live upon the mother retires into the country and the son enters the army well i must confess these are scruples i registered their deed of gift yesterday and how much did they possess 
Oh, not much. From twelve to thirteen hundred thousand francs. But to return to our million. Certainly, said Danglars in the most natural tone in the world. Are you then pressed for this money? Yes, for the examination of our cash takes place tomorrow. Tomorrow? Why did you not tell me so before? Why, it is as good as a century. At what hour does the examination take place? At two o'clock. Send at twelve, said Danglars, smiling. Monsieur de Beauville said nothing, but nodded his head and took up the portfolio. Now I think of it, you can do better, said Danglars. How do you mean? The receipt of Monsieur de Monte Cristo is as good as money. Take it to Rothschild's or Lafitte's, and they would take it off your hands at once. What, through payable at Rome? Certainly. It will only cost you a discount of five thousand or six thousand francs. The receiver started back. Ma foi, he said. I prefer waiting till tomorrow. What a proposition! I thought, perhaps, said Danglars with supreme impertinence, that you had a deficiency to make up. Indeed, said the receiver. And if that were the case, it would be worth while to make some sacrifice. Thank you. No, sir. Then it will be tomorrow. Yes, but without fail. Ah, you are laughing at me. Send tomorrow at twelve, and the bank shall be notified. I will come myself. Better still, since it will afford me the pleasure of seeing you. They shook hands. By the way, said Monsieur de Beauville, are you not going to the funeral of poor Mademoiselle de Villefort, which I met on my road here? No, said the banker. I have appeared rather ridiculous since that affair of Benedetto, so I remain in the background. Bah, you are wrong. How were you to blame in that affair? Listen, when one bears an irreproachable name, as I do, one is rather sensitive. Everybody pities you, sir, and above all Mademoiselle Danglars. Poor Eugenie, said Danglars, do you know she is going to embrace a religious life? No. Alas, it is unhappily but too true. The day after the event, she decided on leaving Paris with a nun of her acquaintance. They are gone to seek a very strict convent in Italy or Spain. Oh, it is terrible! And Monsieur de Beauville retired with this exclamation, after expressing acute sympathy with the father. But he had scarcely left before Danglars with an energy of action those can alone understand who have seen Robert Macaire, represented by Frédéric, exclaimed, Fool! Then, enclosing Monte Cristo's receipt in a little pocket-book, he added, Yes, come at twelve o'clock. I shall then be far away. Then he double-locked his door, emptied all his drawers, collected about fifty thousand francs in banknotes, burned several papers, left others exposed to view, and then commenced writing a letter, which he addressed, to Madame la Baronne d'Anglars. "'I will place it on our table myself to-night,' he murmured. Then, taking a passport from his drawer, he said, "'Good. It is available for two months longer.'" End of chapter 104
Chapter One Hundred and Five of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Hundred and Five The Cemetery of Pere Lachaise. Monsieur de Beauville had indeed met the funeral procession which was taking Valentine to her last home on earth. The weather was dull and stormy. A cold wind shook the few remaining yellow leaves from the boughs of the trees and scattered them among the crowd which filled the boulevards. Monsieur de Villefort, a true Parisian, considered the cemetery of Père Lachaise alone worthy of receiving the mortal remains of a Parisian family. There alone the corpses belonging to him would be surrounded by worthy associates. He had therefore purchased a vault which was quickly occupied by members of his family. On the front of the monument was inscribed, The Families of Saint-Méran and Villefort. For such had been the last wish expressed by poor René, Valentine's mother. The pompous procession therefore wended its way towards Père Lachaise from the Faubourg Saint-Honoré. Having crossed Paris, it passed through the Faubourg du Temple, then leaving the exterior boulevards, it reached the cemetery. More than fifty private carriages followed the twenty mourning coaches, and behind them more than five hundred persons joined in the procession on foot. These last consisted of all the young people whom Valentine's death had struck like a thunderbolt, and who, notwithstanding the raw chilliness of the season, could not refrain from paying a last tribute to the memory of the beautiful, chaste, and adorable girl, thus cut off in the flower of her youth. As they left Paris, an equipage with four horses at full speed was seen to draw up suddenly. It contained Monte Cristo. The Count left the carriage and mingled in the crowd who followed on foot. Chateau Renaud perceived him, and immediately, alighting from his coupé, joined him. The Count looked attentively through every opening in the crowd. He was evidently watching for someone, but his search ended in disappointment. "'Where is Morel?' he asked. "'Do either of these gentlemen know where he is?' "'We have already asked that question,' said Chateau Renaud, "'for none of us has seen him.' The Count was silent, but continued to gaze around him. At length they arrived at the cemetery. The piercing eye of Monte Cristo glanced through clusters of bushes and trees, and was soon relieved from all anxiety. For seeing a shadow glide between the yew trees, Monte Cristo recognized him whom he sought. One funeral is generally very much like another in this magnificent metropolis. Black figures are seen scattered over the long white avenues. The silence of earth and heaven is alone broken by the noise made by the crackling branches of hedges planted around the monuments. Then follows the melancholy chant of the priests, mingled now and then with a sob of anguish escaping from some woman concealed behind a mass of flowers the shadow monte cristo had noticed passed rapidly behind the tomb of abelard and eloise placed itself close to the heads of the horses belonging to the hearse and following the undertaker's men arrived with them at the spot appointed for the burial each person's attention was occupied Monte Cristo saw nothing but the shadow which no one else observed. Twice the Count left the ranks to see whether the object of his interest had any concealed weapon beneath his clothes. 
when the procession stopped this shadow was recognized as morel who with his coat buttoned up to his throat his face livid and convulsively crushing his hat between his fingers leaned against a tree situated on an elevation commanding the mausoleum so that none of the funeral details could escape his observation everything was conducted in the usual manner a few men the least impressed of all by the scene pronounced a discourse some deploring this premature death others expatiating on the grief of the father and one very ingenious person quoting the fact that valentine had solicited pardon of her father for criminals on whom the arm of justice was ready to fall until at length they exhausted their stories of metaphor and mournful speeches monte cristo heard and saw nothing or rather he only saw morel whose calmness had a frightful effect on those who knew what was passing in his heart si said beauchamp pointing out morel to debray what is he doing up there and they called chateau renaud's attention to him how pale he is said chateau renaud shuddering he is cold said debray not at all said chateau renaud slowly i think he is violently agitated he is very susceptible bah said debray he scarcely knew mademoiselle de villefort you said so yourself true still i remember he danced three times with her at madame de morcerf's do you recollect that ball count where you produced such an effect no i do not replied monte cristo without even knowing of what or to whom he was speaking so much was he occupied in watching morel who was holding his breath with emotion the discourse is over farewell gentlemen said the count and he disappeared without anyone seeing whither he went the funeral being over the guests returned to paris chateau renaud looked for a moment for morel but while they were watching the departure of the count morel had quitted his post and chateau renaud failing in his search joined debray and beauchamp monte cristo concealed himself behind a large tomb and awaited the arrival of morel who by degrees approached the tomb now abandoned by spectators and workmen morel threw a glance around but before it reached the spot occupied by monte cristo the latter had advanced yet nearer still unperceived the young man knelt down the count with outstretched neck and glaring eyes stood in an attitude ready to pounce upon morel upon the first occasion morel bent his head till it touched the stone then clutching the grating with both hands he murmured oh valentine the count's heart was pierced by the utterance of these two words he stepped forward and touching the young man's shoulder said i was larking for you my friend monte cristo expected a burst of passion but he was deceived for morel turned round said calmly you see i was praying the scrutinizing glance of the count searched the young man from head to foot he then seemed more easy shall i drive you back to paris he asked no thank you do you wish for anything leave me to pray the count withdrew without opposition but it was only to place himself in a situation where he could watch every movement of morel who at length arose 
brushed the dust from his knees and turned towards paris without once looking back he walked slowly down the rue de la roquette the count dismissing his carriage followed him about a hundred paces behind maximilian crossed the canal and entered the rue Millet by the boulevards five minutes after the door had been closed on morel's entrance it was again opened for the count julie was at the entrance of the garden where she was attentively watching penelon who entering with zeal into his profession of gardener was very busy grafting some bengal roses ah count she exclaimed with the delight manifested by every member of the family whenever he visited the rue melee maximilian has just returned has he not madame asked the count yes i think i saw him pass but pray call emmanuel excuse me madame but i must go up to maximilian's room this instant replied monte cristo i have something of the greatest importance to tell him go then she said with a charming smile which accompanied him until he had disappeared monte cristo soon ran up the staircase conducting from the ground floor to maximilian's room when he reached the landing he listened attentively but all was still like many old houses occupied by a single family the room door was panelled with glass but it was locked maximilian was shut in and it was impossible to see what was passing in the room because a red curtain was drawn before the glass the count's anxiety was manifested by a bright colour which seldom appeared on the face of that imperturbable man what shall i do he uttered and reflected for a moment shall i ring no the sound of a bell announcing a visitor will but accelerate the resolution of one in maximilian's situation and then the bell would be followed by a louder noise monte cristo trembled from head to foot and as if his determination had been taken with the rapidity of lightning he struck one of the panes of glass with his elbow the glass was shivered to atoms then withdrawing the curtain he saw morel who had been writing at his desk bound from his seat at the noise of the broken window i beg a thousand pardons said the count there is nothing the matter but i slipped down and broke one of your panes of glass with my elbow since it is opened i will take advantage of it to enter your room do not disturb yourself do not disturb yourself and passing his hand through the broken glass the count opened the door morel evidently discomposed came to meet monte cristo less with the intention of receiving him than to exclude his entry ma foi said monte cristo rubbing his elbow it's all your servant's fault your stairs are so polished it is like walking on glass are you hurt sir coldly asked morel i believe not but what are you about there you were writing i your fingers are stained with ink ah true i was writing i do sometimes soldier though i am monte cristo advanced into the room maximilian was obliged to let him pass but he followed him you were writing said monte cristo with a searching look i have already had the honor of telling you i was said morel the count looked around him your pistols are beside your desk said monte cristo pointing with his finger to the pistols on the table 
"'I am on the point of starting on a journey,' replied Morel disdainfully. "'My friend,' exclaimed Monte Cristo, in a tone of exquisite sweetness, "'Sir?' "'My friend, my dear Maximilian, do not make a hasty resolution, I entreat you.' "'I make a hasty resolution?' said Morel, shrugging his shoulders. "'Is there anything extraordinary in a journey?' maximilian said the count let us both lay aside the mask we have assumed you no more deceive me with that false calmness than i impose upon you with my frivolous solicitude you can understand can you not that to have acted as i've done to have broken that glass to have intruded on the solitude of a friend you can understand that to have done all this i must have been actuated by real uneasiness or rather by a terrible conviction morel you are going to destroy yourself indeed count said morel shuddering what has put this into your head i tell you that you are about to destroy yourself continued the count and here is proof of what i say and approaching the desk he removed the sheet of paper which morel had placed over the letter he had begun and took the latter in his hands morel rushed forward to tear it from him but monte cristo perceiving his intention seized his wrist with his iron grasp you wish to destroy yourself said the count you have written it well said morel changing his expression of calmness for one of violence well and if i do intend to turn this pistol against myself who shall prevent me who will dare prevent me all my hopes are blighted my heart is broken my life a burden everything around me is sad and mournful earth has become distasteful to me and human voices distract me it is a mercy to let me die for if i live i shall lose my reason and become mad when sir i tell you all this with tears of heartfelt anguish can you reply that i am wrong can you prevent my putting an end to my miserable existence tell me sir could you have the courage to do so yes morel said monte cristo with a calmness which contrasted strangely with the young man's excitement yes i would do so you exclaimed morel with increasing anger and reproach you who have deceived me with false hopes who have cheered and soothed me with vain promises when i might if not have saved her at least have seen her die in my arms you who pretend to understand everything even the hidden sources of knowledge and who enact the part of a guardian angel upon earth and could not even find an antidote to a poison administered to a young girl ah oh, sir indeed you would inspire me with pity were you not hateful in my eyes morel yes you tell me to lay aside the mask and i will do so be satisfied when you spoke to me at the cemetery i answered you my heart was softened when you arrived here i allowed you to enter but since you abuse my confidence since you have devised a new torture after i thought i had exhausted them all then count of monte cristo my pretended benefactor then count of monte cristo the universal guardian be satisfied you shall witness the death of your friend and morel with a maniacal laugh again rushed towards the pistols 
and i again repeat you shall not commit suicide prevent me then replied morel with another struggle which like the first failed in releasing him from the count's iron grasp i will prevent you and who are you then that arrogates to yourself this tyrannical right over free and rational beings who am i repeated monte cristo listen i am the only man in the world having the right to say to you morel your father's son shall not die to-day and monte cristo with an expression of majesty and sublimity advanced with arms folded toward the young man who involuntarily overcome by the commanding manner of this man recoiled a step why do you mention my father stammered he why do you mingle a recollection of him with the affairs of to-day because i am he who saved your father's life when he wished to destroy himself as you do to-day because i am the man who sent the purse to your young sister and the pharaoh to old morel because i am the edmond dante who nursed you a child on my knees morel made another step back staggering breathless crushed then all his strength gave way and he fell prostrate at the feet of monte cristo then his admirable nature underwent a complete and sudden revulsion he arose rushed out of the room and to the stairs exclaiming energetically julie julie emmanuel emmanuel monte cristo endeavored also to leave but maximilian would have died rather than relax his hold of the handle of the door which he closed upon the count julie emmanuel and some of the servants ran up in alarm on hearing the cries of maximilian morel seized their hands and opening the door exclaimed in a voice choked with sobs on, on your knees on your knees he is our benefactor the savior of our father he is he would have added edmond dante but the count seized his arm and prevented him julie threw herself into the arms of the count emmanuel embraced him as a guardian angel morel again fell on his knees and struck the ground with his forehead then the iron-hearted man felt his heart swell in his breast a flame seemed to rush from his throat to his eyes he bent his head and wept for a while nothing was heard in the room but a succession of sobs while the incense from their grateful hearts mounted to heaven julie had scarcely recovered from her deep emotion when she rushed out of the room descended to the next floor ran into the drawing-room with childlike joy and raised the crystal globe which covered the purse given by the unknown of the allée de meillan meanwhile emmanuel in a broken voice said to the count oh count how could you hearing us so often speak of our unknown benefactor seeing us pay such homage of gratitude and adoration to his memory how could you continue so long without discovering yourself to us oh it was cruel to us and dare i say it to you also listen my friends said the count i may call you so since we have really been friends for the last eleven years the discovery of this secret has been occasioned by a great event which you must never know 
i wished to bury it during my whole life in my own bosom but your brother maximilian wrested it from me by a violence he repents of now i am sure then turning around and seeing that morel still on his knees had thrown himself into an armchair he added in a low voice pressing emmanuel's hand significantly watch over him why so asked the young man surprised i cannot explain myself but watch over him emmanuel looked around the room and caught sight of the pistols his eyes rested on the weapons and he pointed to them monte cristo bent his head emmanuel went towards the pistols leave them said monte cristo then walking towards morel he took his hand the tumultuous agitation of the young man was succeeded by a profound stupor julie returned holding the silken purse in her hands while tears of joy rolled down her cheeks like dewdrops on the rose here is the relic she said do not think it would be less dear to us now we are acquainted with our benefactor my child said monte cristo colouring allow me to take back that purse since you now know my face i wish to be remembered alone through the affection i hope you will grant me oh said julie pressing the purse to her heart no no i beseech you do not take it for some unhappy day you will leave us will you not you have guessed rightly madame replied monte cristo smiling in a week i shall have left this country where so many persons who merit the vengeance of heaven lived happily while my father perished of hunger and grief while announcing his departure the count fixed his eyes on morel and remarked that the words i shall have left this country had failed to rouse him from his lethargy he then saw that he must make another struggle against the grief of his friend and taking the hands of emmanuel and julie which he pressed within his own he said with the mild authority of a father my kind friends leave me alone with maximilian julie saw the means offered of carrying off her precious relic which monte cristo had forgotten she drew her husband to the door let us leave them she said the count was alone with morel who remained motionless as a statue come said monte cristo touching his shoulder with his finger are you a man again maximilian yes for i begin to suffer again the count frowned apparently in gloomy hesitation maximilian maximilian he said the ideas you yield to are unworthy of a christian oh do not fear my friend said morel raising his head and smiling with a sweet expression on the count i shall no longer attempt my life then we are to have no more pistols no more despair no i have found a better remedy for my grief than either a bullet or a knife poor fellow what is it my grief will kill me of itself my friend said monte cristo with an expression of melancholy equal to his own listen to me one day in a moment of despair like yours since it led to a similar resolution i also wish to kill myself 
one day your father equally desperate wished to kill himself too if anyone had said to your father at the moment he raised a pistol to his head if anyone had told me when in my prison i pushed back the food i had not tasted for three days if anyone had said to either of us then live the day will come when you will be happy and will bless life no matter whose voice had spoken we should have heard him with the smile of doubt or the anguish of incredulity and yet how many times has your father blessed life while embracing you how often have i myself ah exclaimed morel interrupting the count you only lost your liberty my father had only lost his fortune but i have lost valentine look at me said monte cristo with that expression which sometimes made him so eloquent and persuasive look at me there are no tears in my eyes nor is there fever in my veins yet i see you suffer you maximilian whom i love as my own son well does not this tell you that in grief as in life there is always something to look forward to beyond now if i entreat if i order you to live morel it is in the conviction that one day you will thank me for having preserved your life oh heavens said the young man oh heavens what are you saying count take care but perhaps you have never loved child replied the count i mean as i love you see i have been a soldier ever since i attained manhood i reached the age of twenty-nine without loving for none of the feelings i before then experienced merit the appellation of love well at twenty-nine i saw valentine for two years i have loved her for two years i have seen written in her heart as in a book all the virtues of a daughter and wife count to possess valentine would have been a happiness too infinite too ecstatic too complete too divine for this world since it has been denied me but without valentine the earth is desolate i have told you to hope said the count then have a care i repeat for you seek to persuade me and if you succeed i shall lose my reason for i should hope that i could again behold valentine the count smiled my friend my father said morel with excitement have a care i again repeat for the power you wield over me alarms me weigh your words before you speak for my eyes have already become brighter and my heart beats strongly be cautious or you will make me believe in supernatural agencies i must obey you though you bade me call forth the dead or walk upon the water hope my friend repeated the count ah said morel falling from the height of excitement to the abyss of despair ah you are playing with me like those good or rather selfish mothers who soothe their children with honeyed words because their screams annoy them no my friend i was wrong to caution you do not fear i will bury my grief so deep in my heart i will disguise it so 
that you shall not even care to sympathize with me. Adieu, my friend. Adieu. On the contrary, said the Count, after this time, you must live with me. You must not leave me, and in a week we shall have left France behind us. And you still bid me hope? I tell you to hope, because I have a method of curing you. Count, you render me sadder than before, if it be possible. You think the result of this blow has been to produce an ordinary grief, and you would cure it by an ordinary remedy, change of scene. And Morel dropped his head with disdainful incredulity. What can I say more? asked Monte Cristo. I have confidence in the remedy I propose, and only ask you to permit me to assure you of its efficacy. Count, you prolong my agony. Then, said the Count, your feeble spirit will not even grant me the trial I request. Come, do you know of what the Count of Monte Cristo is capable? Do you know that he holds terrestrial beings under his control, nay, that he can almost work a miracle? Well, wait for the miracle I hope to accomplish, or—or, or, repeated Morel, or take care, Morel, lest I call you ungrateful. Have pity on me, Count. I feel so much pity towards you, Maximilian, that, listen to me attentively, if I do not cure you in a month, to the day, to the very hour, mark my words, Morel, I will place loaded pistols before you, and a cup of the deadliest Italian poison, a poison more sure and prompt than that which has killed Valentine. Will you promise me? Yes, for I am a man, and have suffered like yourself, and also contemplated suicide. Indeed, often, since misfortune has left me, I have longed for the delights of an eternal sleep. But you are sure you will promise me this, said Morel, intoxicated. I not only promise, but swear it, said Monte Cristo, extending his hand. In a month, then, on your honour, if I am not consoled, you will let me take my life into my own hands, and whatever may happen you will not call me ungrateful. In a month, to the day, the very hour and the date are sacred, Maximilian. I do not know whether you remember that this is the 5th of September. It is ten years to-day since I saved your father's life, who wished to die. Morel seized the Count's hand and kissed it. The Count allowed him to pay the homage he felt due to him. In a month you will find on the table, at which we shall be then sitting, good pistols and a delicious draught. But, on the other hand, you must promise me not to attempt your life before that time. Oh, I also swear it. Monte Cristo drew the young man towards him, and pressed him for some time to his heart. And now, he said, after today, you will come and live with me. You can occupy Hades apartment, and my daughter will at least be replaced by my son. Hedy, said Morel, what has become of her? She departed last night. To leave you? To wait for me, 
hold yourself ready then to join me at the champs elysees and lead me out of this house without anyone seeing my departure maximilian hung his head and obeyed with childlike reverence end of chapter 105chapter 106 of the count of monte cristo by alexandre dumas this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 106 dividing the proceeds the apartment on the second floor of the house in the rue saint-germain-de-prés where albert de morcerf had selected a home for his mother was let to a very mysterious person this was a man whose face the concierge himself had never seen for in the winter his chin was buried in one of the large red handkerchiefs worn by gentlemen's coachmen on a cold night and in the summer he made a point of always blowing his nose just as he approached the door contrary to custom this gentleman had not been watched for as the report ran that he was a person of high rank and one who would allow no impertinent interference his incognito was strictly respected his visits were tolerably regular though occasionally he appeared a little before or after his time but generally both in summer and winter he took possession of his apartment about four o'clock though he never spent the night there at half past three in the winter the fire was lighted by the discreet servant who had the superintendence of the little apartment and in the summer ices were placed on the table at the same hour at four o'clock as we've already stated the mysterious personage arrived twenty minutes afterwards a carriage stopped at the house a lady alighted in a black or dark blue dress and always thickly veiled she passed like a shadow through the lodge and ran upstairs without a sound escaping under the touch of her light foot no one ever asked her where she was going her face therefore like that of the gentleman was perfectly unknown to the two concierges who were perhaps unequal throughout the capital for discretion we need not say she stopped at the second floor then she tapped in a peculiar manner at a door which after being opened to admit her was again fastened and curiosity penetrated no farther they used the same precautions in leaving as in entering the house the lady always left first and as soon as she had stepped into her carriage it drove away sometimes towards the right hand sometimes to the left then about twenty minutes afterwards the gentleman would also leave buried in his cravat or concealed by his handkerchief the day after monte cristo had called upon danglars the mysterious lodger entered at ten o'clock in the morning instead of four in the afternoon almost directly afterwards without the usual interval of time a cab arrived and the veiled lady ran hastily upstairs the door opened but before it could be closed the lady exclaimed oh lucien oh my friend the concierge therefore heard for the first time that the lodger's name was lucien still as he was the very perfection of a doorkeeper he made up his mind not to tell his wife well what is the matter my dear asked the gentleman whose name the lady's agitation revealed tell me what is the matter oh lucien can i confide in you of course you know you can do so but what can be the matter 
your note of this morning has completely bewildered me this precipitation this unusual appointment come ease me of my anxiety or else frighten me at once lucien a great event has happened said the lady glancing inquiringly at lucien monsieur danglars left last night left monsieur danglars left where has he gone i do not know what do you mean has he gone intending not to return undoubtedly at ten o'clock at night his horses took him to the barrier of charenton there a post-chaise was waiting for him he entered it with his valet de chambre saying that he was going to fontainebleau then what did you mean stay he left a letter for me a letter yes read it and the baroness took from her pocket a letter which she gave to dubray dubray paused a moment before reading as if trying to guess its contents or perhaps while making up his mind how to act whatever it might contain no doubt his ideas were arranged in a few minutes for he began reading the letter which caused so much uneasiness in the heart of the baroness and which ran as follows madame and most faithful wife de bray mechanically stopped and looked at the baroness whose face became covered with blushes read she said de bray continued when you receive this you will no longer have a husband oh you need not be alarmed you will only have lost him as you have lost your daughter i mean that i shall be travelling on one of the thirty or forty roads leading out of france i owe you some explanations for my conduct and as you are a woman that can perfectly understand me i will give them listen i received this morning five millions which i paid away almost directly afterwards another demand for the same sum was presented to me i put this creditor off till to-morrow and i intend leaving to-day to escape that to-morrow which would be rather too unpleasant for me to endure you understand this do you not my most precious wife i say you understand this because you are as conversant with my affairs as i am indeed i think you understand them better since i am ignorant of what has become of a considerable portion of my fortune once very tolerable while i am sure madame that you know perfectly well for women have infallible instincts they can even explain the marvellous by an algebraic calculation they have invented but i who only understand my own figures know nothing more than that one day these figures deceived me have you admired the rapidity of my fall have you been slightly dazzled at the sudden fusion of my ingots i confess i have seen nothing but the fire let us hope you have found some gold among the ashes with this consoling idea i leave you madame and most prudent wife without any conscientious reproach for abandoning you you have friends left and the ashes i have already mentioned and above all the liberty i hasten to restore to you and here madame i must add another word of explanation so long as i hoped you were working for the good of our house and for the fortune of our daughter i philosophically closed my eyes but as you have transformed that house into a vast ruin i will not be the foundation of another man's fortune you were rich when i married you but little respected excuse me for speaking so very candidly but as this is intended only for ourselves i do not see why i should weigh my words 
I have augmented our fortune, and it has continued to increase during the last fifteen years, till extraordinary and unexpected catastrophes have suddenly overturned it, without any fault of mine. I can honestly declare, you, madame, have only sought to increase your own, and I am convinced that you have succeeded. I leave you, therefore, as I took you, rich but little respected. Adieu. I also intend from this time to work on my own account. Accept my acknowledgments for the example you have set me, and which I intend following. Your very devoted husband, Baron Danglars. The Baroness had watched Debray while he read this long and painful letter, and saw him notwithstanding his self-control change colour once or twice. When he had ended the perusal, he folded the letter and resumed his pensive attitude. "'Well?' asked Madame Donglars, with an anxiety easy to be understood. "'Well, madame,' unhesitatingly repeated Nebray, "'with what ideas does that letter inspire you?' "'Oh, it is simple enough, madame. It inspires me with the idea that Monsieur Donglars has left suspiciously.' "'Certainly. But is this all you have to say to me?' "'I do not understand you,' said Nebray, with freezing coldness. "'He is gone, never to return.' "'Oh, madame, do not think that.' "'I tell you, he will never return. I know his character. He is inflexible in any resolutions formed for his own interests. If he could have made any use of me, he would have taken me with him. He leaves me in Paris, as our separation will conduce to his benefit. Therefore he has gone, and I am free forever.' added Madame Donglars in the same supplicating tone. De Bray, instead of answering, allowed her to remain in an attitude of nervous inquiry. "'Well?' she said at length. "'Do you not answer me?' "'I have but one question to ask you. What do you intend to do?' "'I was going to ask you,' replied the Baroness, with a beating heart. "'Ah, then, you wish to ask advice of me?' "'Yes, I do wish to ask your advice,' said Madame Donglars, with anxious expectation. "'Then if you wish to take my advice,' said the young man coldly, "'I would recommend you to travel.' "'To travel?' she murmured. "'Certainly. As Monsieur Donglars says, you are rich and perfectly free. In my opinion, a withdrawal from Paris is absolutely necessary after the double catastrophe of Mademoiselle Donglars broken contract and Monsieur Donglars disappearance. The world will think you abandoned and poor, for the wife of a bankrupt would never be forgiven were she to keep up an appearance of opulence. You have only to remain in Paris for about a fortnight, telling the world you are abandoned and relating the details of this desertion to your best friends who will soon spread the report. Then you can quit your house, leaving your jewels and giving up your jointure, and everyone's mouth will be filled with praises of your disinterestedness. They will know you are deserted, and think you also poor, for I alone know your real financial position, and am quite ready to give up my accounts as an honest partner. The dread with which the pale and motionless baroness listened to this was equalled by the calm indifference with which de Bray had spoken. "'Deserted?' she repeated. "'Ah, oh, yes, 
i am indeed deserted you are right sir and no one can doubt my position these were the only words that this proud and violently enamoured woman could utter in response to dumouray but then you are rich very rich indeed continued dumouray taking out some papers from his pocket-book which he spread upon the table madame danglars did not see them she was engaged in stilling the beatings of her heart and restraining the tears which were ready to gush forth at length a sense of dignity prevailed and if she did not entirely master her agitation she at least succeeded in preventing the fall of a single tear madame said Debray, it is nearly six months since we have been associated you furnished a principal of one hundred thousand francs our partnership began in the month of april in may we commenced operations and in the course of the month gained four hundred and fifty thousand francs in june the profit amounted to nine hundred thousand in july we added one million seven hundred thousand francs it was you know the month of the spanish bonds in august we lost three hundred thousand francs at the beginning of the month but on the thirteenth we made up for it and we now find that our accounts reckoning from the first day of partnership up to yesterday when i closed them showed a capital of two million four hundred thousand francs that is one million two hundred thousand for each of us now madame said debray delivering up his accounts in the methodical manner of a stockbroker there are still eighty thousand francs the interest of this money in my hands but said the baroness i thought you never put the money out to interest excuse me madame said debray coldly i had your permission to do so and i have made use of it there are then forty thousand francs for your share besides the one hundred thousand you furnished me to begin with making in all one million three hundred forty thousand francs for your portion now madame i took the precaution of drawing out your money the day before yesterday it is not long ago you see and i was in continual expectation of being called on to deliver up my accounts there is your money half in banknotes the other half in cheques payable to bearer i say there for as i did not consider my house safe enough or lawyers sufficiently discreet and as landed property carries evidence with it and moreover since you have no right to possess anything independent of your husband i have kept this sum now your whole fortune in a chest concealed under that closet and for greater security i myself concealed it there now madame continued debray first opening the closet then the chest now madame here are eight hundred notes of one thousand francs each resembling as you see a large book bound in iron to this i had a certificate in the funds of twenty-five thousand francs then for the odd cash making i think about one hundred and ten thousand francs here is a check upon my banker who not being monsieur danglars will pay you the amount you may rest assured madame danglars mechanically took the check the bond and the heap of banknotes this enormous fortune made no great appearance on the table madame danglars with tearless eyes but with her breast heaving with concealed emotion placed the banknotes in her bag put the certificate and check into her pocket-book and then standing pale and mute 
awaited one kind word of consolation but she waited in vain now madame said debray you have a splendid fortune an income of about sixty thousand livres a year which is enormous for a woman who cannot keep an establishment here for a year at least you will be able to indulge all your fancies besides should you find your income insufficient you can for the sake of the past madame make use of mine and i am ready to offer you all i possess on loan thank you sir thank you replied the baroness you forget that what you have just paid me is much more than a poor woman requires who intends for some time at least to retire from the world the bray was for a moment surprised but immediately recovering himself he bowed with an air which seemed to say as you please madame madame danglars had until then perhaps hoped for something but when she saw the careless bow of debray and the glance by which it was accompanied together with his significant silence she raised her head and without passion or violence or even hesitation ran downstairs disdaining to address a last farewell to one who could thus part from her bah said debray when she had left these are fine projects she will remain at home read novels and speculate at cards since she can no longer do so on the bourse then taking up his account book he cancelled with the greatest care all the entries of the amounts he had just paid away i have one million and sixty thousand francs remaining he said what a pity mademoiselle de villefort is dead she suited me in every respect and i would have married her and he calmly waited until the twenty minutes had elapsed after madame danglars departure before he left the house during this time he occupied himself in making figures with his watch by his side asmodeus that diabolical personage who would have been created by every fertile imagination if lesage had not acquired the priority in his great masterpiece would have enjoyed a singular spectacle if he had lifted up the roof of the little house in the rue saint germain des prés while debray was casting up his figures above the room in which debray had been dividing two million and a half with madame danglars was another inhabited by persons who have played too prominent a part in the incidents we have related for their appearance not to create some interest mercedes and albert were in that room mercedes was much changed within the last few days not that even in her days of fortune she had ever dressed with the magnificent display which makes us no longer able to recognize a woman when she appears in a plain and simple attire nor indeed had she fallen into that state of depression where it is impossible to conceal the garb of misery no the change in mercedes was that her eye no longer sparkled her lips no longer smiled and there was now a hesitation in uttering the words which formerly sprang so fluently from her ready wit it was not poverty which had broken her spirit it was not a want of courage which rendered her poverty burdensome mercedes although deposed from the exalted position she had occupied lost in the sphere she had now chosen like a person passing from a room splendidly lighted into utter darkness appeared like a queen fallen from her palace to a hovel and who reduced to strict necessity 
could neither become reconciled to the earthen vessels she was herself forced to place upon the table, nor to the humble pallet which had become her bed. The beautiful Catalan and noble countess had lost both her proud glance and charming smile, because she saw nothing but misery around her. The walls were hung with one of the grey papers which economical landlords choose as not likely to show the dirt. The floor was uncarpeted. The furniture attracted the attention to the poor attempt at luxury. Indeed, everything offended eyes accustomed to refinement and elegance. Madame de Morcerf had lived there since leaving her house. The continual silence of the spot oppressed her, still seeing that Albert continually watched her countenance to judge the state of her feelings. She constrained herself to assume a monotonous smile of the lips alone, which contrasted with the sweet and beaming expression that usually shone from her eyes, seemed like moonlight on a statue, yielding light without warmth. Albert, too, was ill at ease. The remains of luxury prevented him from sinking into his actual position. If he wished to go out without gloves, his hands appeared too white. If he wished to walk through the town, his boots seemed too highly polished. Yet these two noble and intelligent creatures, united by the indissoluble ties of maternal and filial love, had succeeded in tacitly understanding one another, and economizing their stores and Albert had been able to tell his mother, without extorting a change of countenance, Mother, we have no more money. Mercedes had never known misery. She had often in her youth spoken of poverty, but between want and necessity, these synonymous words, there is a wide difference. Amongst the Catalans, Mercedes wished for a thousand things, but still she never really wanted any. So long as the nets were good, they caught fish, and so long as they sold their fish, they were able to buy twine for new nets. And then, shut out from friendship, having but one affection which could not be mixed up with her ordinary pursuits, she thought of herself, of no one but herself. Upon the little she earned she lived as well as she could. Now there were two to be supported, and nothing to live upon. Winter approached. Mercedes had no fire in that cold and naked room. She who was accustomed to stoves which heated the house from the hall to the boudoir. She had not even one little flower. She whose apartment had been a conservatory of costly exotics. But she had her son. Hitherto the excitement of fulfilling a duty had sustained them. Excitement, like enthusiasm, sometimes renders us unconscious to the things of earth. But the excitement had calmed down, and they felt themselves obliged to descend from dreams to reality. After having exhausted the ideal, they found they must talk of the actual. "'Mother!' exclaimed Albert, just as Madame Donglars was descending the stairs. "'Let us reckon our riches, if you please. I want capital to build my plans upon.' "'Capital nothing,' replied Mercedes, with a mournful smile. No, mother, capital three thousand francs, and I have an idea of our leading delightful life upon this three thousand francs. Child, sighed Mercedes. Alas, dear mother, said the young man, I have unhappily spent too much of your money not to know the value of it. 
these three thousand francs are enormous and i intend building upon this foundation a miraculous certainty for the future you say this my dear boy but do you think we ought to accept these three thousand francs said mercedes colouring i think so answered albert in a firm tone we will accept them the more readily since we have them not here you know they are buried in the garden of the little house in the allee de Mayen at marseilles with two hundred francs we can reach marseilles with two hundred francs are you sure albert oh as for that i have made inquiries respecting the diligences and steamboats and my calculations are made you will take your place in the coupe to chalon you see mother i treat you handsomely for thirty-five francs albert then took a pen and wrote coupe thirty-five francs from chalon to lyon you will go on by the steamboat six francs from lyon to avignon still by steamboat sixteen francs from avignon to marseille seven francs expenses on the road about fifty francs total one hundred and fourteen francs let us put down one hundred and twenty added albert smiling you see i am generous am i not mother but you my poor child i do you not see that i reserve eighty francs for myself a young man does not require luxuries besides i know what travelling is with a post-chaise and valet de chambre anyway mother well be it so but these uh, two hundred francs here they are and two hundred more besides see i have sold my watch for one hundred francs and the guard and seals for three hundred how fortunate that the ornaments were worth more than the watch still the same story of superfluities now i think we are rich since instead of the one hundred and fourteen francs we require for the journey we find ourselves in possession of two hundred and fifty but we owe something in this house thirty francs but i pay that out of my one hundred and fifty francs that is understood and as i require only eighty francs for my journey you see i am overwhelmed with luxury but that is not all what do you say to this mother and albert took out of a little pocket-book with golden clasps a remnant of his old fancies or perhaps a tender souvenir from one of the mysterious and veiled ladies who used to knock at his little door albert took out of his pocket-book a note of one thousand francs what is this asked mercedes a thousand francs but whence have you obtained them listen to me mother and do not yield too much to agitation and albert rising kissed his mother on both cheeks then stood looking at her you cannot imagine mother how beautiful i think you said the young man impressed with a profound feeling of filial love you are indeed the most beautiful and most noble woman i ever saw dear child said mercedes endeavouring in vain to restrain a tear which glistened in the corner of her eye indeed you only wanted misfortune to change my love for you to admiration i am not unhappy while i possess my son ah just so said albert here begins the trial do you know the decision we have come to mother 
Have we come to any? Yes. It is decided that you are to live at Marseille, and that I am to leave for Africa, where I will earn for myself the right to use the name I now bear, instead of the one I have thrown aside. Mercedes sighed. Well, mother, I yesterday engaged myself as substitute in the spice, added the young man, lowering his eyes with a certain feeling of shame, for even he was unconscious of the sublimity of his self-abasement. I thought my body was my own, and that I might sell it. I yesterday took the place of another. I sold myself for more than I thought I was worth, he added, attempting to smile. I fetched two thousand francs. Then these one thousand francs, said Mercedes, shuddering, are the half of the sum, mother. The other will be paid in a year. Mercedes raised her eyes to heaven with an expression it would be impossible to describe, and tears, which had hitherto been restrained, now yielded to her emotion and ran down her cheeks. The price of his blood, she murmured. Yes, if I am killed, said Albert, laughing. But I assure you, mother, I have a strong intention of defending my person, and I never felt half so strong as inclination to live as I do now. Merciful heavens! Besides, mother, why should you make up your mind that I am to be killed? Has La Moretiere, that nay of the south, been killed? Has Chongarnier been killed? Has Bedeau been killed? Has Morel, whom we know, been killed? Think of your joy, mother, when you see me return with an embroidered uniform. I declare, I expect to look magnificent in it, and chose that regiment only from vanity. Mercedes sighed while endeavouring to smile. The devoted mother felt that she ought not to allow the whole weight of the sacrifice to fall upon her son. Well, now you understand, mother, continued Albert. Here are more than four thousand francs settled on you. Upon these you can live at least two years. Do you think so? said Mercedes. These words were uttered in so mournful a tone that their real meaning did not escape Albert. He felt his heart beat, and taking his mother's hand within his own, he said tenderly, Yes, you will live. I shall live? Then you will not leave me, Albert. Mother, I must go, said Albert in a firm, calm voice. You love me too well to wish me to remain useless and idle with you. Besides, I have signed. You will obey your own wish and the will of heaven. Not my own wish, mother, but reason, necessity. Are we not two despairing creatures? What is life to you? Nothing. What is life to me? Very little without you. Mother, for believe me, but for you I should have ceased to live on the day I doubted my father and renounced his name. Well, I will live, if you promise me to still hope and if you grant me the care of your future prospects. You will redouble my strength. Then I will go to the governor of Algeria. He has a royal heart and is essentially a soldier. I will tell him my gloomy story. I will beg him to turn his eyes now and then towards me, 
and if he keeps his word and interests himself for me in six months i shall be an officer or dead if i am an officer your fortune is certain for i shall have money enough for both and moreover a name we shall both be proud of since it will be our own if i am killed well then mother you can also die and there will be an end of our misfortunes it is well replied mercedes with her eloquent glance you are right my love let us prove to those who are watching our actions that we are worthy of compassion but let us not yield to gloomy apprehensions said the young man i assure you we are or rather we shall be very happy you are a woman at once full of spirit and resignation i have become simple in my tastes and am without passion i hope once in service i shall be rich once in monsieur dante's house you will be at rest let us strive i beseech you let us strive to be cheerful yes let us strive for you are to live and to be happy albert and so our division is made mother said the young man affecting ease of mind we can now part come i shall engage your passage and you my dear boy i shall stay here for a few days longer we must accustom ourselves to parting i want recommendations and some information relative to africa i will join you again at marseilles well be it so let us part said mercedes folding around her shoulders the only shawl she had taken away and which accidentally happened to be a valuable black cashmere albert gathered up his papers hastily rang the bell to pay the thirty francs he owed to the landlord and offering his arm to his mother they descended the stairs someone was walking down before them and this person hearing the rustling of a silk dress turned around debray muttered albert you morcerf replied the secretary resting on the stairs curiosity had vanquished the desire of preserving his incognito and he was recognized it was indeed strange in this unknown spot to find the young man whose misfortunes had made so much noise in paris morcerf repeated debray then noticing in the dim light the still youthful and veiled figure of madame de morcerf pardon me he added with a smile i leave you albert albert understood his thoughts mother he said turning towards mercedes this is monsieur debray secretary of the minister for the interior once a friend of mine how once stammered debray what what do you mean i say so monsieur debray because i have no friends now and i ought not to have any i thank you for having recognized me sir debray stepped forward and cordially pressed the hand of his interlocutor believe me dear albert he said with all the emotion he was capable of feeling believe me i feel deeply for your misfortunes and if in any way i can serve you i am yours thank you sir said albert smiling in the midst of our misfortunes we are still rich enough not to require assistance from anyone we are leaving paris 
and when our journey is paid we shall have five thousand francs left the blood mounted to the temples of debray who held a million in his pocket-book and unimaginative as he was he could not help reflecting that the same house had contained two women one of whom justly dishonored had left it poor with one million five hundred thousand francs under her cloak while the other unjustly stricken but sublime in her misfortune was yet rich with a few deniers this parallel disturbed his usual politeness the philosophy he witnessed appalled him he muttered a few words of general civility and ran down the stairs that day the minister's clerks and the subordinates had a great deal to put up with from his ill humor but that same night he found himself the possessor of a fine house situated on the boulevard de la madeleine and an income of fifty thousand livres the next day just as debray was signing the deed that is about five o'clock in the afternoon madame de morcerf after having affectionately embraced her son entered the coupe of the diligence which closed upon her a man was hidden in lafitte's banking-house behind one of the little arched windows which are placed above each desk he saw mercedes enter the diligence and he also saw albert withdraw then he passed his hand across his forehead which was clouded with doubt alas he exclaimed how can i restore the happiness i have taken away from these poor innocent creatures god help me End of chapter 106。of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 107. The Lion's Den. One division of La Force in which the most dangerous and desperate prisoners are confined is called the court of saint bernard the prisoners in their expressive language have named it the lion's den probably because the captives possess teeth which frequently gnaw the bars and sometimes the keepers also it is a prison within a prison the walls are double the thickness of the rest the gratings are every day carefully examined by jailers whose herculean proportions and cold pitiless expression prove them to have been chosen to reign over their subjects for their superior activity and intelligence the courtyard of this quarter is enclosed by enormous walls over which the sun glances obliquely when it deigns to penetrate into this gulf of moral and physical deformity on this paved yard are to be seen pacing to and fro from morning till night pale careworn and haggard like so many shadows the men whom justice holds beneath the steel she is sharpening there crouched against the side of the wall which attracts and retains the most heat they may be seen sometimes talking to one another but more frequently alone watching the door which sometimes opens to call forth one from the gloomy assemblage or to throw in another outcast from society the court of saint bernard has its own particular apartment for the reception of guests it is a long rectangle divided by two upright gratings placed at a distance of three feet from one another to prevent a visitor from shaking hands with 
or passing anything to the prisoners it is a wretched damp nay even horrible spot more especially when we consider the agonizing conferences which have taken place between those iron bars and yet frightful though this spot may be it is looked upon as a kind of paradise by the men whose days are numbered it is so rare for them to leave the lion's den for any other place than the barrier saint jacques or the galleys in the court which we have attempted to describe and from which a damp vapor was rising a young man with his hands in his pockets who had excited much curiosity among the inhabitants of the den might be seen walking the cut of his clothes would have made him pass for an elegant man if those clothes had not been torn to shreds still they did not show signs of wear and the fine cloth beneath the careful hands of the prisoner soon recovered its gloss in the parts which were still perfect for the wearer tried his best to make it assume the appearance of a new coat he bestowed the same attention upon the cambric front of a shirt which had considerably changed in color since his entrance into the prison and he polished his varnished boots with the corner of a handkerchief embroidered with initials surmounted by a coronet some of the inmates of the lion's den were watching the operations of the prisoner's toilet with considerable interest see the prince is pluming himself said one of the thieves he's a fine-looking fellow said another if he had only a comb and hair grease he'd take the shine off the gentleman in white kids his coat looks almost new and his boots shine like a nigger's face it's pleasant to have such well-dressed comrades but didn't those gendarmes behave shamefully must have been jealous to tear such clothes he looks like a big bug said another dresses in fine style and then to be here so young oh what larks meanwhile the object of this hideous admiration approached the wicket against which one of the keepers was leaning come sir he said lend me twenty francs you will soon be paid you run no risks with me remember i have relations who possess more millions than you have denier come i beseech you lend me twenty francs so that i may buy a dressing-gown it is intolerable always to be in a coat and boots and what a coat sir for a prince of the cavalcanti the keeper turned his back and shrugged his shoulders he did not even laugh at what would have caused anyone else to do so he'd heard so many utter the same things indeed he heard nothing else come said andrea you are a man void of compassion i'll have you turned out this made the keeper turn round and he burst into a loud laugh the prisoners then approached and formed a circle i tell you with that wretched sum continued andrea i could obtain a coat and a room in which to receive the illustrious visitor i am daily expecting of course of course said the prisoners anyone can see he's a gentleman well then lend him the twenty francs said the keeper leaning on the other shoulder surely you will not refuse a comrade i am no comrade of these people said the young man proudly you have no right to insult me thus the thieves looked at one another with low murmurs and a storm gathered over the head of the aristocratic prisoner raised less by his own words than by the manner of the keeper the latter sure of quelling the tempest when the waves became too violent 
allowed them to rise to a certain pitch that he might be revenged on the importunate andrea and besides it would afford him some recreation during the long day the thieves had already approached andrea with some screaming la savate la savate a cruel operation which consists in cuffing a comrade who may have fallen into disgrace not with an old shoe but with an iron-heeled one others proposed the anguille another kind of recreation in which a handkerchief is filled with sand pebbles and two sous pieces when they have them which the wretches beat like a flail over the head and shoulders of the unhappy sufferer let us horsewhip the fine gentleman said others but andrea turning towards them winked his eyes rolled his tongue around his cheeks and smacked his lips in a manner equivalent to a hundred words among the bandits when forced to be silent it was a masonic sign caderousse had taught him he was immediately recognized as one of them the handkerchief was thrown down and the iron-heeled shoe replaced on the foot of the wretch to whom it belonged some voices were heard to say that the gentleman was right that he intended to be civil in his way and that they would set the example of liberty of conscience and the mob retired the keeper was so stupefied at this scene that he took andrea by the hands and began examining his person attributing the sudden submission of the inmates of the lion's den to something more substantial than mere fascination andrea made no resistance although he protested against it suddenly a voice was heard at the wicket benedetto exclaimed an inspector the keeper relaxed his hold i am called said andrea to the visitors room said the same voice you see someone pays me a visit ah my dear sir you will see whether a cavalcanti is to be treated like a common person and andrea gliding through the court like a black shadow rushed out through the wicket leaving his comrades and even the keeper lost in wonder certainly a call to the visitors room had scarcely astonished andrea less than themselves for the wily youth instead of making use of his privilege of waiting to be claimed on his entry into la force had maintained a rigid silence everything he said proves me to be under the protection of some powerful person this sudden fortune the facility with which i have overcome all obstacles an unexpected family and an illustrious name awarded to me gold showered down upon me and the most splendid alliances about to be entered into an unhappy lapse of fortune and the absence of my protector have cast me down certainly but not for ever the hand which has retreated for a while will be again stretched forth to save me at the very moment when i shall think myself sinking into the abyss why should i risk an imprudent step it might alienate my protector he has two means of extricating me from this dilemma the one by a mysterious escape managed through bribery the other by buying off my judges with gold i will say and do nothing until i am convinced that he has quite abandoned me and then andrea had formed a plan which was tolerably clever the unfortunate youth was intrepid in the attack and rude in the defence he had borne with the public prison and with privations of all sorts still by degrees nature or rather custom had prevailed and he suffered from being naked dirty and hungry it was at this moment of discomfort that the inspector's voice called him to the visitors room 
Andrea felt his heart leap with joy. It was too soon for a visit from the examining magistrate, and too late for one from the director of the prison or the doctor. It must, then, be the visitor he hoped for. Behind the grating of the room into which Andrea had been led, he saw, while his eyes dilated with surprise, the dark and intelligent face of Monsieur Bertuccio, who was also gazing with sad astonishment upon the iron bars, the bolted doors, and the shadow which moved behind the other grating. "'Ah!' said Andrea, deeply affected. "'Good morning, Benedetto,' said Bertuccio, with his deep, hollow voice. "'You! you!' said the young man, looking fearfully around him. "'Do you not recognize me, unhappy child?' "'Silence! Be silent!' said Andrea, who knew the delicate sense of hearing possessed by the walls. "'For heaven's sake, do not speak so loud!' "'You wish to speak with me alone, do you not?' said Bertuccio. "'Oh, yes!' "'That is well.' And Bertuccio, feeling in his pocket, signed to a keeper whom he saw through the window of the wicket. "'Read,' he said. "'What is that?' asked Andrea. "'An order to conduct you to a room, and to leave you there to talk to me.' "'Oh!' cried Andrea, leaping with joy. Then he mentally added, "'Still my unknown protector. I am not forgotten. They wish for secrecy, since we are to converse in a private room. I understand Bertuccio has been sent by my protector.' The keeper spoke for a moment with an official, then opened the iron gates and conducted Andrea to a room on the first floor. The room was whitewashed, as is the custom in prisons, but it looked quite brilliant to a prisoner, though a stove, a bed, a chair, and a table formed the whole of its sumptuous furniture. Bertuccio sat down upon the chair. Andrea threw himself upon the bed. The keeper retired. "'Now,' said the steward, "'what have you to tell me?' "'And you?' said Andrea. "'You speak first. "'Oh, no, you must have much to tell me.' since you have come to seek me well be it so you have continued your course of villainy you have robbed you have assassinated well i should say if you had me taken to a private room only to tell me this you might have saved yourself the trouble i know all these things but there are some with which on the contrary i am not acquainted let us talk of those if you please who sent you come come you are going on quickly monsieur benedetto yes and to the point let us dispense with useless words who sends you no one how did you know i was in prison i recognized you some time since as the insolent dandy who so gracefully mounted his horse in the champs elysees oh the champs elysees ah yes we burn as they say at the game of pincette the champs elysees come let us talk a little about my father who then am i you sir you are my adopted father but it was not you i presume who placed at my disposal one hundred thousand francs which i spent in four or five months it was not you who manufactured an italian gentleman for my father 
it was not you who introduced me into the world and had me invited to a certain dinner at auteuil which i fancy i am eating at this moment in company with the most distinguished people in paris amongst the rest with a certain procureur whose acquaintance i did very wrong not to cultivate for he would have been very useful to me just now it was not you in fact who bailed me for one or two millions when the fatal discovery of my little secret took place come speak my worthy corsican speak what do you wish me to say i will help you you were speaking of the champs-elysees just now worthy foster father well well in the champs-elysees there resides a very rich gentleman at whose house you robbed and murdered did you not i believe i did the count of monte cristo tis you who have named him as monsieur racine says well am i to rush into his arms and strain him to my heart crying my father my father like monsieur pixercourt do not let us jest gravely replied bertuccio and dare not to utter that name again as you have pronounced it bah said andrea a little overcome by the solemnity of bertuccio's manner why not because the person who bears it is too highly favoured by heaven to be the father of such a wretch as you oh these are fine words and there will be fine doings if you do not take care menaces i do not fear them i will say do you think you are engaged with a pygmy like yourself said bertuccio in so calm a tone and with so steadfast a look that andrea was moved to the very soul do you think you have to do with galley slaves or novices in the world benedetto you are fallen into terrible hands they are ready to open for you make use of them do not play with the thunderbolt they have laid aside for a moment but which they can take up again instantly if you attempt to intercept their movements my father i will know who my father is said the obstinate youth i will perish if i must but i will know it what does scandal signify to me what possessions what reputation what pull as beauchamp says have i you great people always lose something by scandal notwithstanding your millions come who is my father i came to tell you ah cried benedetto his eyes sparkling with joy just then the door opened and the jailer addressing himself to bertuccio said excuse me sir but the examining magistrate is waiting for the prisoner and so closes our interview said andrea to the worthy steward i wish the troublesome fellow were at the devil i will return to-morrow said bertuccio good gendarme i am at your service ah sir do leave a few crowns for me at the gate that i may have some things i am in need of it shall be done replied bertuccio andrea extended his hand bertuccio kept his own in his pocket and merely jingled a few pieces of money that's what i mean 
said andrea endeavouring to smile quite overcome by the strange tranquillity of bertuccio can i be deceived he murmured as he stepped into the oblong and grated vehicle which they call the salad basket never mind we shall see to-morrow then he added turning towards bertuccio to-morrow replied the steward End of chapter 107